and talking to our friends. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Hellboy Book Club. My name is John Salinas, and I'm here with... Aubrey Loveless. And I'm Danielle. Hey, everybody. Make sure to go check out Mignolaverse.com. Our partners over there have some great content regarding all the Hellboy Winter specials. So if you're a fan of those, you can go see some awesome reviews that they've got going on over there. Don't forget to head over to the Mike Mignola's Art Facebook page. It was payday recently. I know y'all got paid. (laughs) So go over and check out the raffle. You can win some awesome prizes, and all the donations go towards the V Foundation for Cancer Research and the American Brain Tumor Association also. So it's really easy. You just need to get on Facebook. I know a lot of people don't get on Facebook. Just shut up already about it and just get on there. It's fine. You need to go to Mike Manila's Art Facebook group. you got to join the group. It's really easy to join. Just click join group, go to the announcements page, and you can throw some money at this. You can win some awesome prizes, a Mike Mignola sketch, a sketch by James Heron, your choice of a sketch by Lawrence Campbell, a bunch of really cool, awesome signed prints, comics, just really cool stuff. The donations are just $5 each, and there's no limit, so get on that. Raffle is open till the end of the month. Please give us a review on iTunes. Go over to the iTunes app and click on there. Give us five stars and give us a review. We got another review this week. From J Booster Gold, he said, I recently discovered the Hellboy Book Club while looking for a new podcast about comics. I was delighted to find them, and I gave them a listen. The show has great production quality. Thank you for saying hey. that. Thank you. And that? such a knowledgeable crew of John, Aubrey, and Danielle. They dissect the stories from panel to panel and even provide companion research to show where the writer-artist gets his inspiration. This is as deep a podcast into comics as you can get. If you crave the details of the Mignolaverse, as I do, this will excite and delight you. Check out their Instagram and Facebook for companion material as well. Thank you so much, Jay Booster Gold. That That was was a great review. Thank you. That was very kind. We got a Hey You Damn Guys from Doo-Wop Apocalypse on Instagram. He said, I'm just here to drop a brief note to say how much I enjoy listening to the show. I really appreciate how you break down the panels and delve into the folklore weirdness that Mignola builds into the stories. It's like listening to one of the annotated collections. Couple questions, if that's okay. What are your favorite non-Hellboy Mignola story? Have y'all read any? I was thinking, like, have you guys read any non-Hellboy Mignola stuff? For me, there's a couple of Batman things that he did. Uh, Gotham by Gaslight, if you ever read that. That's really good. He also did this Legends of the Dark Knight one-shot called Sanctum. That's It's practically a Hellboy story with Batman instead of Hellboy. <laughs> that sounds it's awesome. It's really good. I did not read that, actually. And then, Didn't um, he do the covers for Death in the Family? Yeah, he, he sure did. He yeah, did. he did the covers for that. Um, that that's re- Those are really good covers. I think that was my first exposure to Yeah, That probably is my first exposure, but yeah. I just didn't click until recently. Yeah. Right. yeah. And then there's also the Baltimore series. I haven't read the Baltimore comics, but the book, he contributed to the book with Christopher Golden, and it's really good. It's a, it's a great book. Well, honestly, I can't say if I actually remember reading any of Mignola's stuff before Hellboy. Right. But I do, I know, like, I've read some comics where he's done the art. Yeah. But I just can't think of right i know there's like an maybe an x factor we talked about this a little bit yeah and there's an issue of x-force that he did in the 90s that i had read it's probably my first thing that i saw we've been talking about that namor cover recently oh yeah there's an old school namor cover that they've uh, brought out recently i think it's colored by dave stewart now awesome he also said if we've read hellboy's world by scott bukatman if so can you recommend it i'd have that book i started reading it it's really interesting but it's like a 
it's like a true art history textbook about Ooh, Hellboy. That sounds awesome. And so it's very academic. It's a very academic read. <laughs> um, if you're into that kind of thing, I have not finished it. I need to, you know, I've I just read been. That. I didn't know you. Yeah, that. it's really good. I have it on the bookshelf oh, cool. here. And so, yeah, I'd, I'd recommend it if you're, but just realize that it's um, it's a very technical, it's on a very technical level, but it's worth picking up. And he says, best wishes and stay weird. Thanks. Thank you so okay. much, Duop Apocalypse, for that awesome letter. Can do. We were all super flattered by Matt Strackbean's work and his illustration of us. Oh, and oh. he recreated the he recreated the BPRD Hollow Earth trade paperback cover. That was adorable. Yeah, what did you guys think about that? We haven't talked about that. Oh my god, that was I mean, <laughs> that was very that was very cute. I showed it to my mom. <laughs> Yeah, I texted it to my brother as well. It was really nice, you know. It was one of these things where I was not having a great day, and I actually felt ill. Like, yeah. I felt physically unwell. It's such a weird thing, like like the placebo effect sure. or whatever, you know, like, uh, after I saw this thing, and, like, I felt better. Yeah. I kind of forgot about what I was, how no, I was feeling like crap. it made my day, too. It was yeah, good. it was really nice. Um, Same. Well, I mean, I don't know. It's just, thinking about it, it was just so amazing, you know, just like made the day nice yeah and i was very tickled by the expression that he gave me on the on on that thing it was really adorable and so check him out at the letter hack on twitter friends of strackbean on instagram thank you so much it really helped me get through that work day it's one of the nicest things ever i think that somebody's done for us so go check out that pic on our social medias justin versus justin on instagram says he loves the show and Johannes Dietz said, I just started listening to your podcast, all these specific theme, but I love it. I try to catch up and be on the same page as you. So thank you so much. We had some feedback on the Midnight Circus way back from episode five from Duncan Figredo. Yeah, that was really cool. That was that, that was also amazing. That <laughs> It was a really great week for hearing from some of these people that have actually worked on the book. It's really um, awesome to think that they're listening to the show. And Duncan said, just listening to you guys chat about the Midnight Circus, it's fun. To answer a question you raised, when it starts to look more painterly, it's because I painted it. It's the equivalent of Dorothy waking up to full-color Oz, pages before color. And so he posted the... He posted the, the pages, yeah. Yeah, he posted those pencils of the... You can really see where the paint separates from the inks, and it's really nice. It's really cool. He yeah, said, um, it was amazing. He said it was fun listening to our reactions to the book. So I'm so glad that he's listening, and uh, thank you so much for giving us that feedback. Thank I'm going to repost those pencils sure, yeah. on our social medias if you want to check those out. They're really beautiful pages. Thank you so much, Duncan, for sharing that. And that's um that's something that's really exciting when you're you're like a wannabe artist like I right. am, and you're you know some some of these artists that you admire and that you whose work you really like are directly interacting with something yeah. that you're doing or that's just it's cool i like that i mean the internet is mostly terrible but sometimes you can interact <laughs> with your favorite artists on there yeah which is great it's really nice it was pretty awesome kind of um, humbling and neat sure yeah it really is yeah we had some feedback on the mole that's the prologue before darkness calls that we read last week jerry turnbull said i think this creature that comes out of the mole is hellboy's true form what he would look like if his mother wasn't human and what he fears he may one day become. That's why it's haunting his dreams. So I thought that was a really cool imp- interpretation. Oh, I totally agree. Some feedback on Darkness Calls. 
Ross Radke said, these are some awesome covers. I love that having Fagredo take over drawing duties allowed Mignola to stretch out as a writer and write scenes that take by his own admission he would never have drawn himself. Yeah, so uh, Mignola didn't want to draw all those armies and stuff like that. So it's really cool that, you know, he can still do whatever he wants and he just hands it off to people so they can draw it instead. Yeah. <laughs> Jan Niklas sent us some feedback. He said, Darkness Calls, little confession time. When I read the story, I didn't like it because now we had a big story arc. I was afraid of trilogies or long series in general. And I also had to get used to that Hellboy had changed from several smaller installments to one epic long story. It was for the better, though. Darkness Calls is interesting because there isn't too much plot happening, but we got so much character stuff, and we see how Hellboy has to live with his earlier deeds. There are consequences for the good he has done, and I know everyone will deny it, but I think this series showed that Hellboy is at its best when he punches the hell out of every mythological creature he meets. Nazis are fun villains for a short time, but Hellboy becomes a character with real death through the gods and monsters of our world. He's at home with them, and I think he slowly learns to accept that even if he was a bit dickish with the witches, I mean, this time they didn't even harm him. But he just goes, bah, witches, you're stupid. And he's a half-witch himself, Hellboy. Also, Mike introduces us to a strange parallel worlds that were only hinted at before. Baba Yaga and Kashi really steal the show. Here we have someone that has no control over his existence, but can't die, and someone that once had all the control she wanted but can't overcome her feeling of loss. She was God in her little realm, but she only lives in the dream world of her own making. Does that mean that the Leshy and Perrin were also made by her? Are they fighting against her because they did that in the real world, or is Baba Yaga's self-hatred going against her? Just came to my mind. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, yeah. No, that was great. Oh, yeah. What a uh, good insight. I want to echo, like, I, I know the uh, feeling of wanting, not wanting to get into trilogies, um, right yeah so too many of them have come out recently in the last 20 years <laughs> yeah there's there's been a lot of that and it seems like especially with the big two you know everything's always building towards some giant cro yeah. mega crossover event yeah you know based uh, i don't know yeah that yeah. model is kind of played out jen niklas said the little piggy is a vengeful asshat but i'm sorry about dogda he was always a mysterious character but you got the feeling that he meant well and acted as a wise and honored leader who had just accepted his fate. I mean, his servants get a box with another doomsday creature in her, and he still tries to talk to them like a father to his children. Everybody else in this universe would have called to arms or ordered them to toss the box away, but Dogda didn't order anybody around. Either he was fatalistic or he really believed in the good of his children. Poor guy. That is one of the saddest deaths in the series, and it only gets worse from now on. Yeah, that was a really intense scene. I remember yeah. that being like, what the yeah, fuck? I, I wasn't expecting that to happen either. And we, we They dialed it up pretty quickly. Yeah. And I didn't really, we didn't really talk about it that much. Like, what happened with that little guy? He just got so he, ramped up yeah. that he just stabbed him. He's like, but I didn't. And then he looks down, he sees the gold blood. It was we, so intense. We, like talk, we didn't face, talk about that so either. Much anguish he has, and he's just, and he, then he fucking stabs himself yeah. it's just such a it's like okay this went from zero to 60 right like it, immediately well i mean maybe it had something to do with being in proximity to the box and the witch that was in the box or the maybe. whoever's I like that a lot because yeah. you know kind of like um the one ring and frodo it you know sure possesses you and all that and then of course then the blood it's gonna drip onto the box and well and then that guy know where that's going that guy right. went and hid in the hole he was like, I don't even want to be anywhere near right. Oh, yeah. 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 I mean, he's just like, that's just some 
fucking evil. Maybe because yeah. he knew it would. He maybe he would end up doing some damage or something. And yeah. He'd want to be responsible for that. Right. I'm glad you brought him up. I was going to talk about. I have my reoccurring segment now, which hey. is all the stuff that I forgot to talk about last oh, week. Oh, good. And one of those things that uh, when I was going back and doing my post was that giant. He has all these tattoos, these yeah, sigils all over those. his body. We didn't oh. talk about that. I thought they were great. Yeah, they're yeah. really nice. It was a really good detail. I really liked that. And so uh, Mark Tweedell responded to Jen Nicholas' comments. Comment. He said the consequences for the good he's done. That's a nice way of framing the trilogy. Drew Campbell said, I would imagine that Duncan enjoys drawing those huge scenes with tons of detail. And the reason I say that is because Mignola has often spoken about writing for other artists and he always seems like he tailors his stories to the particular strengths of whatever artist he's working with. And he also said um, that he saw some of the images of Lee Berhamo's work for Darkness Calls. And he was blown away. It was beautiful, and his style was totally different from Mike's. His depiction of Hellboy's carved horn in particular has always stuck with me. And I don't know if you had a chance to look at any of those. I think Roz Radke shared a link of that. But So in the Duncan version, they whittle it down to like a little shape. Yeah. yeah. But in the Lieber yeah. Hamels version, it's like a relief on the horn. Wow. So it's like still a horn shape, and it's like... Yeah. Okay. Uh, kind of carved into the horn. Yeah. Like Scrimshaw. Yes, exactly. Yeah, it kind of looks that's like a, that. That's actually a really interesting idea because it is a horn. Then when they announced yeah. that he was no longer drawing the book, I was really bummed. But when I saw Duncan's work, I felt like it was too similar to Mike's style. And I was a little bitter about being denied Berhemo's work. Luckily, I very quickly realized I was wrong about Duncan and grew to love his art on Hellboy. But yeah, I would still love to see Berhemo draw a Hellboy book. Yeah, so uh, all that's really interesting. Um, Ross Radke, I think he shared a post to our Instagram, or no, to our Twitter, where he linked some of those pencils. You can go check those out. Jerry Turnbull said the Scots pronunciation is Gragak. Gragak, okay. Yeah, so... So we just said it completely wrong the entire time. Well, Last uh, episode, good. Yeah, he says, Very it, good. he says it rhymes with Bach. Gragak. Yeah. Very cool. Gragak. So thank you for that. And when I post the picture of Hellboy tossing the broken horns on the ground, you yeah. know, uh, so I reversed the image just because I thought it would look better framed. And then Mike <laughs> P. Canales and Jerry Turnbull quickly corrected me that it made it the left hand of doom. Yeah, you can't and do so that. so I was like, dang, God damn it. So, yeah, I uh, thank you for calling me out on that. I won't do that again. I was just trying to make the image look a little better. I didn't even, I didn't even think about that, to be honest. Honestly, I saw that and it just kind of made me laugh. <laughs> I was all like, oh, shit. <laughs> Nathaniel Green loved all the depictions of the flying witches. And Joshua Worley asked, who's writing what? John, Aubrey, and Danielle, what are you flying around when you're heading to the Sabbath? <laughs> They're all holding on to different things. So sure. what, what would you guys be holding on to as you're flying up there? Definitely an owl. An owl? Oh, man. I was thinking like a little lizard yeah, or something for awesome. me, like a frog or something <laughs> like that, a little frog or a lizard. Or but like some a, of them, but some of them just had objects too, like a grackle. I don't know. I think maybe like a sketchbook or something. <laughs> a sketchbook. That's a good one. <laughs> Very creative. Eddie White said, "Baba Yaga is so legit. Love the retelling of Vasila the Beautiful story in this book." And when I posted all the booms that Hellboy inflicted on Nakashi, Mark Tweedell said, "More like right hand of boom." Am I right? <laughs> and Ross Radke said, "I like how occasionally Hellboy actually says boom." Um, he does it in the Wolves of St. August. So I think I've gone back and looked at this. I think we're up to four, if you're counting the ones where he actually says boom. There's two in Wolves of St. August, one in the Chapel of Moloch, and then one in Darkness Calls. 
I've been trying to keep track of that. Ross Ratke said, just started reading Hellboy Library Edition Volume 5, and in the intro, Scott Alley mentions that Lee Berhama was the original artist. We talked about that a little bit already. And he said, I had no idea Berhamo had started drawing this first. I understand why they wouldn't print his pages in the sketchbook section, but I'm curious if there are any others floating around the internet. It's interesting to see the two talented artists interpret the same script. Yeah, that's always that's always really cool. Yeah. Yeah. On this uh, link that he sent us, there's only three pages, and those are the only ones that I've seen. So I, I don't know if the others have been released. And Mark Tweedell said about Darkness Calls God, I love that second epilogue. Mignola always handles these info dumps so poetically. I love the pauses, the stillness, the way that Black punctuates a line of dialogue. I just can't get enough of this stuff. In lesser hands, this would be a chore, but in Mignola's, it's a pleasure. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point. I like that because you're getting all the mythology. It makes it exciting yeah. to like well, read all this cinematic. backstory. Yeah. Yeah. He has a very cinematic style. One of the things that I meant to talk about last week also that I forgot about in this reoccurring segment of things I forgot to talk about is <laughs> um, the two different worlds. You know, we had been reading BPRD for so long oh, yeah. for a yeah. couple of weeks, too. and then we smash cut to Hellboy <laughs> Darkness Calls, and it's just so totally different of a tone, but both of the books live in the same universe, and they're definitely those through lines but what did you guys i meant to ask you guys what you thought about that so excited well it's like seeing that one epilogue with the bprd and they kind of run down of everything that like that he doesn't know and then it's just like oh right this weird fucking crazy tale takes place in this yeah and they're dealing with these like fucking does he know about the frogs i don't know it's it's just two separate tones in hellboy's world is just so weird and yeah amazingly fantastical (laughs) it does have this quality to it yeah it's got this almost this magic veil over yeah. it where everything else was very down-to-earth practical like you know episodic and then here it's it's a very it's just a different quality and it's almost like there's not as i mean i feel like there's the uh, bprd is more feels more action based i guess right. sure whereas hellboy while it does have action just feels more I don't know. It's like he's, he'd as soon to talk it out than, than take a punch. Yeah. You know. And I was trying to think about when was the last time that Hellboy was actually around another person? Sure. Like that would have been in kind of Conquer Worm. more and more. Yeah. Just sort of, it's, it's almost as though he's sinking further and further yeah. into this magic realm that is sort of just yeah. taking over the whole. Yeah. It, it's kind of like the BPRD kind of picked up on the more grounded mm-hmm. nature of the world but then hellboy we're actually getting to wander through this world and meet all of these weird and he's in this never-ending story kind of yeah. thing yeah. yeah yeah you know it's just like you know and he's going through like mythology that's you know it's it's our mythology or it's our human mythologies well and his and it's his background wonderful. or whatever is the is the most mystical in nature i mean he's yeah you know what i mean so yeah. it's very right. It's fun to it makes ex- sense. It's fun to explore the world of the Hellboy world with Hellboy. Oh, yeah, it's my I guess uh, Mignola world. Yeah, sure. <laughs> the tenth thrice was it, John? The ninth, <laughs> ninth thrice lands in the tenth thrice kingdom. There it is. Is that it? And um, I also wanted to talk about, and we've touched on this already a little bit in our uh, re- listener feedback, was the Witch's Sabbath scenes by Duncan. I don't. I wish that we had talked in more detail about that because right. there is so much going on in those scenes. They're so beautifully done. There's this one shot where it shows the inside of that 
house that where they tried to talk to Hellboy and they're all swirling around yeah. in there. Oh, and there's yeah. that spotlight coming in and you can see how they're holding on to all these different things. And we got some some love for that on social media when I posted those images and then also in the listener feedback. But I just wanted to give another shout out to those scenes because they're just so... There's so much oh, detail yeah. in there. And when I was pulling those images for the social media posts, I was like, oh, I wish we would have talked about these a little bit more. I feel like the, the last book just had so much. I mean, it really kind of was kind of a, like a straightforward story, but there was just so much in it. Yeah, there really was. They yeah. worked in a lot of different folklore characters. And um, yeah, yeah, it was great. It was great. All right. I just want to take a chance to shout out the man behind the scenes, Mark Tweedell from Multiversity Comics, who wrote the Hellboy reading order on that site. He's been guiding us through this remix version of the reading order that we're doing on the podcast. I hope that y'all are enjoying it. We're going into a different direction this week. We're going to explore a different part of the universe now with the Witchfinder stories. We're going to get into our book club for the week by talking about The Burial of Catherine Baker. The Burial of Catherine Baker was published in October of 2009 as a backup story to the Hellboy story, The Wild Hunt Number 7. We haven't even got to The Wild Hunt yet. This story was by Mignola and Scott Alley. Art by Patrick Reynolds, and Reynolds is a great artist. He's done a lot of work on these books, as well as some other stuff from Dark Horse, including Aliens, Joe Gollum, and Serenity. Colors by Dave Stewart, and letters by Clem Robbins. We open on R.S. Forsyth of Amersham, 1667. He writes a letter to Richard Stern, Archbishop of York. And Richard Stern was a real archbishop. He was the Church of England priest, Archbishop of York from 1664 to 1683. So the historical fiction lines up on this. He's an old Victorian guy, right? And he's got like a portrait of a character that we're going to be seeing more of behind him. So he thinks very highly of this guy. And it's Henry Hood. He writes a letter to clear his name, now 20 years dead, whose works have been called into question. Foresight tells the story of Catherine Baker in 1646. She was accused of being a witch from casting a plague on her neighbor's crops when her father's land had a good harvest and all the others were worm-eaten. This reminded me a little bit of the Trash Sisters from Dark Water. Remember we talked oh, yeah. about that? Yeah. I was thinking of the same thing. They could only grow roses, right? Or they grew the best roses. Right. And well, and here's the thing. Like, uh, people... I hate to immediately jump in here, but <laughs> what if she knew all the crops were plague-eaten or worm-ridden, and she was like, look, I'm just going to do something to help my own crops. Right. Sure, she could have helped everybody's crops, but they're accusing her of putting a plague on all the other crops right, except right. her own. What if she was just had some knowledge? Sure. Maybe she just had good gardening knowledge That's and right. found a way to keep the plague off of her father's crops and was just a really good gardener. <laughs> Maybe. But they fucking hung her. Yeah. So there you go. That's my what if that happened. Yeah, I, I was thinking something on the similar lines. It's just like, you know. I think there was a lot of that, though, going on. I think that there's yeah. a lot of young women we talked died. About, yeah, we talked yeah. about Aglanice last week, how she knew how to uh, predict eclipses. Yeah. So they thought she was a witch because she had an extra knowledge sure. of yeah. astronomy, you know. And well, it, and we can't have we can't have ladies going around <laughs> having any kind of knowledge now. And it, and it it always seems weird like you know their options are you know like hey this person's you know garden was better than ours roses better than ours sure. can predict an eclipse why don't we like learn from her right but no we're no, gonna burn her yeah why would we you ever know, do I mean that? our options are either a we could actually learn from her or b we could burn be her diaper babies and about it yeah like, uh, 
seriously? That's your only option? Well, she... <laughs> Well, she did some other things too. Um, her lack of grief when her when the boy she loved died attracted suspicion, and then they caught her visiting him in the cemetery. Okay, that part is weird. And I we will, see her. I will grant you that. <laughs> we well, see her talking to this zo- blank-eyed zombie guy, and so it says they tried the girl in the usual manner. What is the they the do? usual <laughs> manner? Is you th- like you throw her in a lake with right, weights on her, like and if she sinks and drowns, then she was innocent, and if she floats. She's guilty, so burn her or hang her. Right. Was that the thing? I, I, guess. I guess. Maybe she floated then. <laughs> yeah, so they, uh, they, they did end up hanging her. What were you going to say, Aubrey? Sorry. Uh, nice, yeah. Oh, crap. I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. No, okay. So the reacting to the grief thing. That's the one thing, you know, is like everybody reacts to grief differently, you know? Yeah, that is true. Some people are you know, like, incarcerated just because they cops thought they didn't act right. They didn't right. react they correctly. Didn't, well, they yeah. could be in shock. Or they could be dealing with it differently. Or, I will say, though, like, I still can't get around the zombie thing. Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> that's definitely weird. Yeah, yeah. The zombie thing is a whole nother <laughs> thing. And so they confirmed her guilt and they show that they hanged her. And then as all these guys try and leave town, the family is blocking Forsyth and Hood. Hood says he's a servant of the crown and he's freeing England from the clutches of the devil. The family wants to bury Catherine amongst family. And so Hood is like, all right, you know, I I understand that. So he walks them back to get the body. Now, this is the guy that's a, a total dick, right? This is the guy. So, yes, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned this. Henry Hood was mentioned. He came out in Darkness Calls. Yeah. And we we're going to talk like about him. it. We're going to talk about him a little bit more. Well, what, what we kind of find through these stories is that he's a little bit of an ambiguous character. Okay. It seems like he started out like really going after evil and then he started to just kill people like more and more right well i thought that we established that he was fucking terrible yeah yeah we did in darkness calls we did talk about him yeah well it sounds like he started out kind of good but then became terrible right Right. yeah Yeah. or the terribleness was unearthed you know probably somehow let the power come to his head to corrupt him slowly right or something like that yeah Yeah. and i think we'll see we'll talk more about him throughout this episode but here he allows them to go back to get the body and when they go back they see this bearded guy and he's taken Catherine out of the grave both the family and hood don't know who the man is he says he's her father come to fetch her home to her family and then the dad's like i'm her father Uh you know what i mean he's like this is her family and we've come for her no no you see i've been her father of late I've been more a father than you ever were, the bearded guy says. Creepy. Yeah, and he, and Hood says to put her down, and he says, What sort of father would I be if I washed my hands of her now, sir? Hasn't your rough treatment delivered her to me? And Hood starts um, doing his sermoning, right? He says, And the great <laughs> dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent called the devil and Satan the deceiver. And he just gets slapped by this bearded guy. He just slaps him in the face. It's, while he's... it's like he back slaps him. Yeah. <laughs> I will say that was extremely satisfying <laughs> <laughs> to, to see. And Hood gets up and he draws his sword and he continues. Thrown down into the earth, his angels thrown down with him, and he stabs the bearded guy, who then erupts into flames. And we revealed the bearded guy is a demon. Very well, you little men, take her. I wish you luck, if you hope to make her lie in hollowed ground. This girl wasn't merely trafficking with spirits. She was doing things far worse than any of you knew. Be wary of the powers you set yourself against, Henry Hood." So we find out in Darkness Calls that Henry Hood's kind of been cursed, right? 
and all this stuff has happened to him. And here this devil is kind of like telling him that that's going to happen because he's doing these things. And so, yeah, so um, Catherine Baker was really, you know, trafficking with devils or whatever. I was just say, I like how he describes how he just walked down a flight of stairs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and just disappeared. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> the office. I, I mean, honestly, I kind of would like to see that in real life. Yeah. Somebody yeah. just like turn and walk down a pair of stairs <laughs> that aren't there and disappear into the earth. Yeah, that would be great. That's a very good visual. The family looked upon Hood and their Catherine in a very different manner as we said our farewells. And no one at the crossroads that day doubted the rightfulness of Hood's mission. What final disposition of her body was decided upon by those people, I do not know. But you will, I trust, find no mention in the church records of any Christian burial of Catherine Baker. The end. So I was thinking about this a little bit. So, you know, the devil says, good luck trying to bury her in hollowed ground. So like that he's warning them that something would happen. And then here the letter is saying that they didn't do that. This is a very weird scene for me because why would the devil think that he's bad? Like, why would the devil be like, I'm terrible? She was doing terrible stuff. Like, wouldn't she just be doing normal stuff well, to him? Well, what he's saying is that well, maybe it, he he just revels in being terrible, right? Or right, but that's to. so bo- <laughs> that just that just smacks of a story being told by someone from just one side. Well, like, it's and very, it is in this. It is that's framed what I'm saying. In this is letter, that like that's yeah. the le- yeah? So like, it makes me wonder: is this how things really happened, or right. is this a bunch sure. of fucking propaganda? <laughs> it sounds like proper fucking ganda to me. It makes me think like he's also warning them not to bury her in hollow sure, ground or something. Sure, because like you know yeah. he's a fucking weirdo with a gigantic collar. Yeah, I, I mean know. that's I don't know. It just really it seems a lot like he's just like, wah ha 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 You, <laughs> I I sure do care about consecrated ground. And right. I she was doing really bad stuff. Ooh, like it just seems like all right, guy. I don't think this is actually the way that shit went down. It's I don't know. After you said that, it made the first thing that popped in my head is like somebody reading this letter, and then it flashes to like what's really yeah. happening. He's like, "Hey, I'm taking her." No. Yeah. Okay. Well, I just really should. I think I should though. No, no seriously. <laughs> okay. All right. Fine. Jeez. Whatever. Uh, all right. Cool. So, just, but even the thing with the zombie, like, was she really caught I'm in the sure. company of a zombie, or are they just fucking idiots? Uh, yeah. Like, was she just? Was it a really pale? Did she dude? maybe go to to like visit his grave to say goodbye and mourn a little bit? And they were yeah. like, "Oh, she's in there." comporting with the dead like she you was know, talking to the dead i think uh, that this whole story just really seems like suspect yeah that's the way that that's how history is told. that's how history yeah. is told too is uh oh all the witches like i think a lot of women died unnecessarily because of stuff like this oh, and definitely so like in in the hellboy bprd world yes we do see demons yeah we see them but oftentimes it's hard to know whether or not like they're actually a villain because it seems like they're just doing their thing a lot of the time right. and they're not really We've seen a lot of that. Yeah. yeah. And so there are, and then there are other people working against those people and they're having a big fight and they're having a fight with each other but they're fighting each other it's not like they're I don't know. I yeah. don't know. It just seems like a a lot of weird propaganda like the devil is like oh, I'm the devil. <laughs> <laughs> Do that again. Uh, um, anyway that's just my two cents i guess that's a little no i mean i actually enjoy that because uh i'm literally playing devil's advocate right now this is is not no i did not (laughs) no i mean that to happen no i mean but you have a point because there's something that's nice about mignola's world is that 
the demons aren't just black and white cookie sure. cutter. You know, it's not like Lord of the Rings where everybody's evil. Like if you're an orc, you're sure. evil. You right. know, it's just right. It's a nice. It's also a nice take. It's a nice spin. It feels a little more. Yeah, grown up. Take a look on the. Uh, well, and it is in character world. for the guy that's writing this letter. So it's sure. You know what yeah. I mean? It's yeah. yeah. He's got that's a picture. How he would write. He's got a picture of Henry Hood in his right behind his desk. So I mean, sure. he obviously loves the guy. Yeah. He's right. going to try and frame oh, him yeah. to be the most True. pleasurable as possible. And it also makes me think a little bit what you were talking about. It makes me think of Asmodeus. You know, he yeah. was kind of. Uh, you know, he was kind of the victim of his story, and then Shax. When we saw the demon yeah. Shax, he was like, "All right, guys, peace out. I'm, 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 out I'm, I'm, I'm going back home." Right. And then Marchosius, the Mar- yeah, yeah Marchosius yeah. in the Universal Machine, where he just uh, was a slave to the Marquis, and he was only about causing revenge to him, and then he went back. Right. To, and they, well, I mean, they were being tortured and all this horrible yeah. stuff. So they, you know, hey. Anyway. Good yeah. discussion. Now we're going to talk about murderous intent. Murderous Intent was first published in MySpace Dark Horse Presents 16, November 2008. It was written as a brief introduction to Sir Edward Gray before the miniseries In the Service of Angels. Written by Mignola, art by Ben Stenbeck, colors by Dave Stewart, and letters by Clem Robbins. And so this scene, uh, we get this old creepy house. Stenbeck does a good job of setting the mood here. We see all the things that Mignola loves, gravestones and witches. And the witches are calling these evil spirits. The witches call these evil spirits. I conjure and command thee, consecrate this image, Victoria, Queen of England. And we see one of the witches is holding a picture of the Queen of England. And there are all these like sigils written on there and stuff like that. We are against thee, irreconcilable. Go and place a dagger in her eyes, a knot in her tongue, fire in her mouth. And the witch spits on the picture. And they call these names... These evil angels, Puziel, Guziel, Pezdiel, Prizil. And so I kind of looked these up. So all these angel names are fallen angels. These names are usually used to invoke against one's enemies. Now, uh, according to what tome or text? That's what I was going to say. This... So all these names come from M. Gaster, the Sword of Moses. And this is an apocryphal Jewish book of magic edited by Moses Gaster in Palestine Hmm. in 1896 from a 13th or 14th century manuscript from his own collection. Ray High Gaon, 1939 to 1038, mentions the book alongside the Sefer Ha Yashar, described as another book of formulas, and that it may even date to as early as the first four centuries CE. Besides the medieval manuscript used by Gaster, a short fragment of the text survives in Cod, Oxford, 1531. So it's like he's writing a manuscript about an ancient piece of literature that they found. And that's this sort of Moses. And that's where these names come from. Interesting. So anyway, I've looked up all that. And they're calling out these names. So, But these names line up with what they would be used for. So I like that. And they're asking them to kill Victoria because we wish it done. And we see this cauldron. I really like this image of the cauldron um, yeah, with all the sigils awesome. on it. And there's like a hand coming out of it. Super good. Oh. That'd make a great tattoo. I, I just love this entire page. The yeah. Way it's laid out. All the, the witches around the cauldron and all the black and just a little bit of lighting coming from the, the cauldron. The caricatures of witches. You <laughs> see, well, yeah, okay, sorry. <laughs> you know what I mean. You I do. I mean. Yeah. Uh, and then the, um, the staircase and how it's 
the lit and then the no yeah, yeah it's good it, stuff just and the whole layout of it and how the panels like you know half the page quarter and so forth yeah it's smaller as oh, it goes yeah. down i like that yeah the uh the cauldron with the sigils and the the smoke in the hand and all that that's a really i like that a lot yeah, my favorite panel and so edward gray shows up he says enough not another word i warn you do not move and they're about to hand this picture over to this hand that's coming out of the cauldron and Edward just starts shooting at the witches. They drop the picture, and the witches turn into birds. It looks like, well, he shot one of them, and the two other come out as birds, and they try and fly away. And Edward shoots uh, both of the birds also. And then he's able to grab the picture. He grabs it right bef- So the cauldron spills over. I really like this image, too. Right. The cauldron spills over in this... Um, one of these evil angels or whatever they were summoning is still kind of coming out. And the hand has, like, a mouth on it. Oh, man. I really like that a lot. That is such a cool image. It's like a real creepy but cool. It's super good. Yeah, love it. And so the picture is going towards the mouth. So I guess, like, if the mouth got it, then that would she would die. It's very metal. The queen would die or something. And so Edward is able to get it right before that happens. And this last witch that was alive, she comes down and tries to grab him. He shoots at her. And I really love the... The color, I guess, the dramatic color yeah. shift. It's like oh, this yeah. bright orange. And then as soon as he shoots her, it j- it just seems very still. And now and she's like gray. a corpse or whatever. Yeah, and then she just collapses into bones. We can see where the the cauldron monster, where it like grabbed <laughs> Edward. It, There's like, another b- hand coming out of a different puddle. Yeah. Yeah. And it, But it had that mouth there, so I guess it, the mouth it bit, bit him. him. Yeah. Yeah. So I wonder what that did to him, you know, to have this evil witch summon hand mouth bite him. That's probably <laughs> not a good thing for him. Sure. With the picture now in his hand and all the witches shot, all the actions kind of done, he's defeated all of them. On March 11th, 1879, Edward Gray, late of West Sussex, but recently appointed Her Majesty's London agent for the investigation of occult matters, was knighted. Sir Edward Gray, the Queen says, for special services in the protection of crown and country... And while the exact nature of his services would never be revealed to the public, rumors would circulate and the man would acquire the unofficial and unwanted title, Witchfinder. And we see that we see that throughout, like all the they all call him that. They're like, Oh, the Witchfinder. Witchfinder. <laughs> so you say this came out on MySpace? <laughs> so the, I talked about this a little bit before. I think there was another story that came out on this MySpace Dark Horse Presents. Oh, right. And so Dark Horse Presents was a series and it had they were reviving it on MySpace. And then it was eventually all those stories were collected into a trade, I think. Does it still say MySpace on it? No, not no, no. It's it, <laughs> since then it's been relaunched oh, as just yeah. Dark Horse Presents or I think it just says DHP now oh, on man. it. But yeah, that was like um that was in the early 2000s, I guess, when they were relaunching it. But si- since then, they've relaunched it several times. The numbering is really weird on there. Anyway. Okay, now we're going to talk about the main story today. Sir Edward Gray, Witchfinder in the Service of Angels. This is a five-issue miniseries published from July to November 2009. This is the first Witchfinder miniseries, each issue featuring a cover by Mike Mignola. Story by Mignola, art by Ben Stenbeck, again, colors by Dave Stewart, and letters by Clem Robbins. We open on London, 1879, and a crowd gathers around. There's been a murder, and the cops talk. It looks like a blooming tiger's been at him, one of them says. They stop as this new guy arrives. Mr. High and Bloody Mighty, says one of the cops. I like hearing you read these 
supposedly Cockney accents yeah. and just a totally just... American <laughs> accent. I'm, I, I'm not going to start doing voices. No, no, so no. I just it. no. I'm just saying it's it's interesting. Maybe like you can do booming a... tigers, but no, I'm not trying to say we should that you should do an accent. I well, just think it's amusing. Kelly's been watching a lot of like British shows when I was reading it. I could hear more of a British accent in my head. And that when you read it, I still heard it in my head. <laughs> yeah, sorry. But no, no, I'm not going to try and do one. What, why don't you do one? Can you do it? I will not. Oh, man. Shucks. Maybe if I practice. So, <laughs> no. So Edward Gray approaches and he seems to have his reputation well established. Gray talks to the cops. The dead guy is Bradley T. Hopkins. He seems to have been thrown out of his upstairs office, and there was no blood in the place, and the doors were also latched from the inside, so it's all kind of that creepy stuff. He says that there was no blood in the place, but the dialogue is, it's an horrible mess, but nary a trace of blood. Right, yeah. I like how they talk. They do a good job of scripting this with those all those Victorian languages. Sure, sure. Gray turns and he stares at Lord Wellington, who seems to know the dead men as well. Gray says, that makes it three murders. You've been reluctant to cooperate with my investigation, but now, sir, I really must insist. And Gray and Wellington leave the scene to talk. And I really like this mood that Stenbeck sets here. We get one of these kind of little mood panels, yeah, kind of like great. Mignola draws, and it's just... It's just very well done. Also, I really like it. Also, he's got the most ridiculously British name, Lord Wellington. Yes. <laughs> Glad you brought that up. Oh, my gosh. It looks like he has, like, a circle around his eye, too, like, from a monocle or something, or I don't know. It just... He's... It does look like a monocle on yeah. his eye. I think that's just, just, like, shading? Yeah, I think that's just how... Well, oh, but it... I mean, I think it's purposeful shading. Like, he's got rings under his eyes, like he hasn't actually slept. Right, yeah, yeah. But he made it look sure. like a monocle. Oh, yeah, that makes that's a good point. At his room, Wellington drinks, and he asks Gray about his adventures, how he saved the Queen, which we had just read about. But Gray says he's not at liberty to discuss the details of my service to Her Majesty. And Wellington keeps trying to ask him about all these things, but Gray is trying to... He tries to get Wellington to concentrate. This panel with the the wide shot of the room and all the artifacts and books and things with the umbrella stand and the little shelves and cabinets, there's a sketch of that in the back that I really love. Oh, you can okay. see all the detail. Not, I mean, obviously Dave Stewart's coloring is incredible and I love it, but you can really see the original pencils. Like he actually drew all that shit. He yeah, really planned out, that yeah. planned out the room. Yeah, that sure. is so, thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, it's really nicely done. And even the little artifact case behind Gray as yeah, he talks, you can see all those little there. things in there. Looks like a little pig on there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you see like a fertility idol and stuff like that. Oh, I was talking about. Oh, okay, yeah. No, I was talking about this pen. Oh, right. yeah. The three previous murders, Douglas Maynard, Albert Sims, and Bradley Hopkins, the latest guy, were all done in the same savage manner, and all the victims were part of Wellington's recent expedition. So this kind of reminded me of the Cavendish expedition, right? That yeah. We, yeah. We, get, we get a lot of these stories where they all go off and do this horrible thing, and then they're all cursed. I know you're trying to explain these big, huge story plot things, but I keep seizing on these little details. Yes, like, no, please. Like this Edgar Allan Poe-looking motherfucker sitting in a giant overstuffed chair with a brandy <laughs> snifter. He's got a crystal brandy snifter. He's next to a raging fire. It's just very... Uh, yeah, that's just, Wellington. It's yeah. very dramatic. It is, and yeah. I, I, I just really love all the language that they use also i just want him at some point to like to just like throw the 
brandy snifter into the fire and not see you in hell like you know something very uh, it's very like that british victorian stuffy. it's just such a, it's just such an over dramatic yeah, right but i love it no it's oh, it's good yeah. stuff it's just very <laughs> i love it too it's just you know it's just like it's just holding like, my brandy yes i love all these all these mustached and mutton chopped looking guys. Yeah, very serious. And in like business. the clothes they're wearing, like when those like suits, like vest and a shirt, right? And a, a weird ass bow tie. No, I love the bow tie. Yeah, that's a good point, Aubrey. The dress is very well done for this time period. And Wellington says, "Well, you're being quite generous, calling our little outing an expedition. We'd have made a proper go of it if the British Museum had seen fit to give us that grant. But no, if the apostles didn't write about it, if Homer didn't mention it." Those fellows don't want to know. I thought this was some interesting commentary. Mm -hmm. And I'm sorry to say my own private resources are not what they used to be. Of course, none of that matters now. You just want to know what's doing these killings. You want to know if I know. Well, of course I do. And Wellington goes on. It's a strange world, Gray. I suppose you know that better than most. But you're wrong about the number of these killings. Wrong by half. Sanders was the first. While we were still on the desert, oh, the papers reported that it was a fever, but I never saw a fever like that. True, there were no signs of violence, but, well, poor Saunders. And yet, isn't it fitting that he should be the first to go? It was his mad dream started this whole thing, and madness claimed us all in the end. There are theories, Gray. Imagine whole civilizations rising and falling before the coming of man. How would that square with your Bible stories? What would it mean to prove a thing like that? I won't tell you what Saunders learned or how he learned it or what led us to this place, but there is a city out there in the Sahara a thousand times older than Troy, Eurasian, or maybe Hi or maybe Hypos. And these are, according to Amelia Dunn's The Secret History of the World, unpublished. These were two of the seven cities, Atlantis being another, established by later Hyperborean Empire. And we've read about it, a lot of different Hyperborean cities at this point, We've read about Lemuria, Atlantis, Ur, Babylon, Gorinium, and now this city, uh, Eurasian. Eurasian. It looks like Urasan. Urasan. I'm well, sorry. Well, I mean, it's a made-up city. It's not like it has an actual pronunciation for it. Maybe... But I think Eurasian is so close to Eurasia. It is, yeah. yeah. Urasan is better. I like that. Okay. Or maybe Hypos. Hypos. <laughs> oh, sure. <laughs> Whatever it is, the greater part of it is underground now, probably due to some prehistoric cataclysm. Most of it was hopelessly buried. We hadn't men or equipment to do a proper excavation. But even so, what we did find, the ruins of a civilization mostly unknown, and mixed with the art and artifacts of that lost culture, we found primitive carvings, stone tools, evidence of the earliest human beings. It was all clear to us all those humans had lived in this place long after the original builders had gone, if we only turned back then. And I love all these shots that Stenbeck does of the city, and of all the little artifacts in there, we yeah. see this sword in there. I like the detail that the museum was like, no, fuck that. We don't want any part of that. Yeah, yeah. I, I like that little detail. detail. And they're trying to, yeah, we kind of glossed over a lot of that. But, you know, these guys are trying to prove that there's more out there. Well, yeah, they're trying yeah. to completely disprove yeah. everything in this. There's like, oh, the Bible, your storybook. Oh, what about right. the stories in yeah. there? Like, he's trying to be like... Hey, we found evidence that this isn't actually the case, and they're, the museum, which is supposed to be right. an institution of science, sure. yeah. is saying, 
fuck no. Right. We don't want to approve any of that. We don't want to see or hear any of that shit. Yeah. Well, so also, that's, that's really interesting. Also, back in that time, I guess the museum was probably funded by the crown, which yeah. was also absolutely lying with the church. You're right. Uh, You're right. Well, they're supposed to uphold the and, fucking, that's the whole thing. They're they the Church wanna, of England or whatever. And they don't want to like, you know, support anything that's yeah. going to challenge their authority. Well, and they, also the British Museum is basically just a bunch of marauders going around stealing very precious things from cultures, indigenous cultures all over the world. So, but it looks like you don't have to be sponsored by the museum. Sure, to absolutely. Be a yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can. You These can guys do it are on marauding your own. as well. They're just there's more British marauders. Yep. And on their third day underground, we made the greatest discovery, the thing that would damn us all: a nearly complete skeleton, something like a man, but not a man, and not an ape or any other kind of animal. Ashby was quite certain of that. A proper Darwinian nightmare, he called it. A good deal of it broke apart when we dug it out, but not before we got some very lovely photographs. That'll complicate things for the old Church of England. Wait, what year is this? Let me see. I'm having a hard time placing the is time like period. 1879 or Yeah, 1879. Oh, okay. I also like the little arrowheads that are underneath the skeleton. Mm. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, and, we're, and that makes sense with the panel we're going to see yeah. later. And Saunders took very ill that night. Next day, our natives had run off, Wellington says. Ashby wanted to rebury the bones, but the rest of us wouldn't hear of it. When Saunders died, we told ourselves it was natural. When Ashby took ill aboard the ship, we told ourselves it was the same, though we all knew better. He kept crying out that something was at him, that he could see its face, and all the while begging us to throw those bones overboard. Then he died, and a few days later, Griffin started complaining of nightmares, and a week later, we found him dead out on the deck. Unlike Saunders and Ashby, he had marks on him, like something small had been gnawing at him. Rats, we thought. All ships have rats. And the rest of us were drawing up our plans. We hired an artist friend of Maynard's to do up some bones, based on the photographs to replace the ones that crumbled. Then we'd exhibit the complete skeleton at the Royal Archaeological and offer it to the British Museum, maybe along with some of those bits and pieces from the city. If they wouldn't pay, we'd put the whole lot on tour. Sims knew some show people. He said he could arrange that. Either way, we'd raise the money, go back to the city, and make a proper job of it. We docked two weeks ago. We hadn't even arranged to have those false bones made before Maynard was murdered. Then Sims. Hopkins came to me this morning scared to death, saying we must finally get rid of the bones. The real ones. This time I agreed. We hired a laborer off the street, told him to take them and get rid of them. We didn't even care how or where. Didn't want to know. Just get rid of them. And we hoped that would be the end of it. Don't know where those bones are now or how to find that fellow we gave them to. That's real fucking smart. <laughs> yeah, really. Like, we and hoped that would be the end of it, doing the stupidest thing possible. Just... But unfortunately, <laughs> no one could have ever foreseen that telling a guy, we don't care how or what you do with this shit, just right. do something with him and now we're in trouble. Oh, who could have foreseen that? Well, Ashby, he even said... <laughs> like, I mean, come on. Ash... Give him some specific... Give him some fucking specifics. Yeah, take it, take it somewhere, burn it, or bury it. Well, that's or, what Ashby you know. said. He said, rebury the bone. Yeah. So why don't they just do that? You know what I mean? He's like, I don't want to do it anymore, but I definitely think it's very important. <laughs> so, I don't know. Uh, I just want to make a point on this whole thing where they're like... Um... They're gonna offer the complete skeleton to the Royal Academy, and if they don't want, if they want to pay or something like right. that, right. I feel like that's like the Victorian era version of putting something on eBay. Right. Sure. <laughs> it's like I went out and bought the uh, NES Classic. 
before you did, and now I'll sell it to you for $500. Right. <laughs> well, I think this guy is hoisted by his own petard over here. And that's exactly what happens, because Edward Gray asks him, who was the man's name? And he says, damn, what was his? And then Edward Gray, he stops, the f- glass falls to the ground. <laughs> and we turn around, and we see this, like, monster over him, right? No, we it's see- gin. It was we- gin. Oh, is that? Oh, yeah, we do see that. It was Jin that fell to the ground. Thank you for that detail. Danielle. I love how the like the most exciting panel so far in the story is this goblin like appearing on the chair about yeah. to murder everyone, and I'm like, oh, it was a it was a different kind of alcohol. <laughs> anyway, and um, so this. Uh, Wellington's dead in the chair and this monster it jumps at Sir Edward Grey and it smashes into this cabinet that was that he was standing behind and we saw it was all full of artifacts and stuff like that and that plays into this action scene as they're fighting first Edward Grey grabs this like ancient rock or whatever some sort of relic and he smashes it on the monster's head breaking it apart and then he grabs this club and it's this double tipped sword thing right and it starts glowing And he holds it up and he's like commanding to the Lord with it. And it gives this huge, it lets out all this light, I guess, into the room. And it's kind of scares the monster away. I really like the way this page, I just really like the art on this page. And I love that sword. We've seen that sword before. Do you remember where we've seen that? Wasn't it in Hollow Earth? Yeah, it was in Hollow Earth. So there was that guy, I guess he was the King of Fear. He was the one that was trying to, um, he had Liz in that machine, and he had a sword that looked exactly like that. So that's where we've seen that. And also, this little monster guy, I guess we're going to learn he's like a vampire, but he's also reminiscent of those monsters from Hollow Earth. Yeah. Yeah. They're the same thing. Has Uh, anyone made a replica of this thing? I don't know. I'm sure somebody has. I I think I remember seeing one on Mike Mignola's art, maybe, but I would like to have one one made. I was actually talking to somebody about like a like a real size, like a true to size. Well, the guy that I was talking to, um, apparently, he makes replicas for Renaissance Fair, but they're all they're all made out of wood. But he makes them look like metal, like a two scale. Right, but it's a two scale. It would be a lot cheaper also if it was all made out of wood. And so I might actually, I don't know. I was thinking about contacting him about that. Well, we don't have to put that in there for now. We can, yeah. yeah. That would be cool. Uh, And he'll do other weapons too. I don't know. I don't know. I need to find out. Somebody at at work told me about him. You guys are sword nerds over here. (laughs) Anyway, because there is that, like, uh, in the sketch where the book at the end has the sword. Like it shows it without the hilt and how. Oh yeah, yes, yeah. Thank you for pointing that out in the sketchbook. There's a really nice sketch um, where Mignola shows how it's all put together and what the blade looks like inside the handle. It's really cool to look at that. But anyway, getting back to the scene here, as Edward Gray holds it up in front of this monster, he asks it to speak its name, and from the background, Wellington's dead body says Blackwood. Donald Blackwood. And then this little monster grabs the whole <laughs> chair with Wellington in it and throws it across the room. I thought that was really humorous yeah. and it like crashes into the wall. This little goblin is awesome. <laughs> Gray reaches for his gun and the monster jumps out the window and Gray goes after it onto the roof. I like the detail of the I hate to keep doing this to you. I like the little table that goes up against the wall. It's yeah. like flat on one side. No, I like all those little details, and thank you for pointing those out, because Stenbeck really, he really put a lot of work into this, into these little details. It's important to point them out. You know, just as I was looking at that page, I like this little painting. You can kind of see it. the Taj Mahal. Yeah, Yeah. you can see that it's a Taj Mahal. That's really neat. Well, also, um, 
didn't the Hyperborean city they went to look kind of like It that? did look like that, too. That's what I was thinking. It kind of yeah. looked like the Taj Mahal, so maybe yeah. it was a picture of that. Remember not, Lord, our offenses, nor the offenses of our forefathers. Neither take thou vengeance of our sins, Grace says. Spare us, good Lord. Spare thy people, whom thou hast redeemed with thy precious blood. And he shoots the monster, <laughs> right? He turns blood. around and he shoots it. And this is all paced really well. I love this scene out on the roof. Again, it's just really well done as the monster is like kind of creeping up behind Gray. You can kind of tell that he knows it's behind him. Then he just turns around and shoots him. And it's paced with that dialogue perfectly. And as he blows this monster away, he really like empties the whole gun into him. And it just turns into vapor. It just kind of disappears into the air. And Gray's like, damn. Kind of reminds me of Hellboy a little bit. Right, that yeah. That little damn He's right just, there. just left standing on a roof with this weird sword. And then again, you were pointing out all the detail. We get one last shot of Wellington's room all smashed and everything, and you can really see all the little detail in there. Yeah, his little cases. Over at St. John of the Cross Police Hospital, the doctors examined the corpse of Wellington. All the previous victims show clear signs of brutal treatment, but Wellington didn't show any, other than the damage of being thrown across the room. Yeah. <laughs> Dr. Lewis says, while I can find no wound to account for it, you cannot seem to hazard a guess how it could be done. It would seem that nearly all fluids in the body have been extracted, and the condition of the body would suggest that this was done, however it was done, in a matter of seconds. Exsanguination. Yeah. I learned that uh, word when I was... Uh, super little kid watching the X-Files. Yeah. <laughs> I remember the exact episode. It was like these twins and they were all like clones or some shit. Oh. And they were like, turned out to be kind of fucked up and they were like poisoning people with foxglove. The whole thing with the sodas. Anyway. Wow. I don't remember that one. We're going to go episode. back and watch that one. It's a good episode. I should think his death would have been nearly instantaneous, Dr. Lewis says. So that he was already dead when he spoke, Grace says. With all due respect, sir, perhaps in all the excitement, you were mistaken about that. Because remember, he said Donald Blackwood. And Gray's like, I assure you, doctor, I heard what I heard. And then we cut to this guy. So I want to talk about this guy. If you go back and you go to the scene, go back a page and look at the scene where the doctors are. There's this one guy. Is he like the chief or something? And he's just sitting in the corner. <laughs> yeah. You see how they're examining over here? And he's sitting in the corner and we pan over oh, to him. Yes. He's yeah. like drinking a little tea and he's got like a little... <laughs> dessert cake or, or something yeah <laughs> you guys uh, with that body over there and there's another body covered too <laughs> yeah and so while they're doing this he's over there drinking Gross. his tea and stuff like that and i was trying isn't to isn't there I, like formaldehyde or something and, i mean there's like, <laughs> and there's also like these jars with yeah oh so this is the police hospital so i was wondering if this guy is like the police chief or something i don't know if we get his I name think a lot of that stuff was combined back in the day right like, yeah where yeah, like the are. same guy who was the dentist was also the coroner was right, also uh, the yeah, blacksmith exactly. was also the whatever. And so anyway, chief this of, chief of police was head yeah. of operations <laughs> of the fucking cadavers or some shit. I mean, you never know. He might like get up and walk over there and like you know poke around and go back and eat his cake because you know, they never Aubrey. They they never washed their hands or had gloves. Or... Well, he's got well, some wait, nice. Were they little... doing hand washing at this point in time though? I think they. Maybe they were doing some basic sort of stuff I don't know. like that. Um, okay, so I was just listening I no, to this I don't really know. podcast about the presidents, and they talked about James Garfield and how he died oh, because wow. the he got shot, but he might have lived if the doctors had washed their hands. Oh wow! And not kept poking him in the his oh, bullet hole. Oh, <laughs> oh <laughs> wow. no! Good point. Wow, we. Well, uh, anyway, I like this guy's little gross. teacup. 
His, his little teacup yeah, is very tea nice. Good. Well, I like the globe lamp. The little oil lamp here is nice. Yeah. Anyway, he says, all three previous victims were found to be nearly drained of blood, with very little blood present at the scenes of their murder, and according to Sir Edward, were killed by a creature that mysteriously appears as solid as a house one moment and vapor the next. Gentlemen, are we not forced to consider the Eastern European legend of the umpur, or vampire? And so, of course, I had to look this up. The umpur, so anyway, upir, uh, in Russia, like might be like a root word. Yeah. Anyway. Well, in it, it's a Russian vampiric revenant that is created when a heretic sorcerer or witch dies. It can also be created as a child born of the union between a werewolf and a witch. It's revenant. Those are uh, very specific. But anyway, that's where that comes from. The guy comes in here too. He also tells Gray that the London Registry shows no listing for Donald Blackwood, and that's that name that Dead Wellington said. Hmm. Very difficult getting reliable information from these dead fellows. Damned unreliable, Dr. Lewis says. He's being real sarcastic. He's being kind of a jerk there. And the mustache man, he responds, Dr. Lewis, as you have entirely failed to provide a medical or scientific explanation for the condition of this lordship, what shall we do? If the natural world will not serve, are we not forced to consider the supernatural? Sir Edward, and Edward tells him that he shot it and it vanished, and it appeared the bullets didn't do any harm. But the creature was afraid of that sword. Have any idea what it is? And Edward Grace says that it's all included in his report. He's no archaeologist, but even I can see that this blade, metal and still sharp, is the work of one culture, and the handle primitive. One might even say Stone Age. It raises some very disturbing questions, the mustache man says. It does. It does. I don't know. There's something about the dialogue that it's it's kind of a slog for me at this point. Like it's just very tedious. It's I'm, kind of hard I'm, to read. It's the... a lot of pages to just get to the point of right. this, and it's just kind of I'm it sort of starting very, to very very dialogue heavy. Yeah, it's yeah. very dialogue heavy. But it's not, and I, not that that's necessarily bad in and of itself. It's just very. It it it's a lot of build up. To it's get a to lot the of yeah. It's a lot of it's a lot of florid prose to just say something that is very simple to say like it's whatever shall we do all this stuff it's very come on just like say what you mean it's just very prosy yeah i'm kind of over it the maid comes in with a message from a boy for sir edward the boy ran off before she could give him anything and the paper contains the name and address for donald blackwood dr lewis suggests that gray not go to that side of town at this hour there are sure ways to get killed in the world than ghosts and they show outside we see this kind of part of town and i like these names yeah, on the, the briny mizzen yeah periwinkles jellied eel and vinegar cod well i mean it's, it's like they put their menu on outside <laughs> yeah gross and we cut over to this weird church we're going to see more of this church later and this guy is in there mutton chop guy i don't know if we mutton ever learned i don't know if we ever learned this guy's name but he's writing this long letter he talks about the hollow globe, second edition, and the gospel of nature, especially regarding the creation and evolution of planets. So he's mentioning all this stuff about an inner world. And he's writing this letter. In this letter, he's referencing a lot of stuff that we talked about in Hollow Earth. You know, how there's this like right. inner world. And he makes a reference to Captain J.C. Semi's preposterous hole. I was going to say, I just like the way that he writes it. J.C. Sames, preposterous hole. (laughs) (laughs) 
So as he's writing this letter, and I just like all the detail in his room, you can see he's got these little card catalog things, and he's got all this stuff, um, all these binders in there, and we're going to kind of see a focus on those later, and that's why I'm pointing them out now. And this shape appears behind him, and he just says, thank you, Lord. And then we cut to outside, we cut to this rough part of town, the East End, and here we are with Dr. Lewis again, and he's like, damn it, Gray, when I said you shouldn't come alone, this is not what I had in mind. <laughs> so Gray made them all come with him. That's great. So we're, this is a rough part of town. Yeah. And they go into Blackwood's house, the address that they have for him, and when they go in there, they find this room totally wrecked, and we can see that there's like a hand there, yeah. there's like some blood or whatever. And back to the mutton shop guy who saw the figure appear behind him, and I looked down into the earth and beheld green fields and a golden city. And a voice said, All this I have prepared for you. When the time is right, a messenger of the Lord shall come to you to prepare a way to lead you and all your followers into paradise. And see, that day promised is come at last. And he's talking to that monster. So he thinks that monster yeah, is, you sure. know, his Should savior or whatever. I mean, he's so happy he's crying. Is yeah. that Are they looking for Mr. Blackwood? Is that is he Mr. Blackwood? No, uh, Mr. Blackwood is the guy they gave the bones to to okay. get rid of them, and okay. that's who Gray's looking for. Oh, right, right, right. No, I remember now, because of the demon took over that guy's corpse, and the guy was like, Mr. Blackwood is yes. the thing. Okay. Yes, and so that's the last guy that had the bones, yeah, and that's no, what they're he looking was for. Yeah, the, he was the guy that they gave. Okay, never mind. At Blackwood's pl- Oh, okay, so now we're at chapter two. At Blackwood's place, they find his body parts all over. It's not like the previous murders. And no sign of the bag of bones. I like this cover. Oh, yeah. Let's talk about the cover. It's a really beautiful cover. Again, I get a little frustrated that they didn't give us the full color um, yeah. cover. It's kind of like tinted brown. What's um, sepia? Sepia, yeah. It's nice. I mean, but I like the BPRD omnibuses where we get the full color. Yeah, sure. There's just something nice about seeing those full color ones on yeah. the BPRD. They, they go into these. I mean, don't, why they, don't get me wrong. They're great. They're silver and... Um, the Hellboy stuff, but I mean, right. I really wish we had that full color. Gray hears somebody there while they're looking through Blackwood. Didn't mean to give you a start, a voice says, and it's this guy in a top hat who's smoking a cigarette. But if you're the Edward, I'm to take you to a gentleman's got information regarding these matters. Just see you give the coppers a slip. So come alone. And Gray tells the sergeant he'll be right back. He just leaves out. And they all think that this is very suspicious. They don't think it's a right move for Edward. They, he, they think he's going to get himself killed. Huh? I like the way he slips the cops by saying, all right, guys, I'm gone. I'll yeah, be back. I'll be right back. <laughs> and so he goes to this rough part of town. He sees these rough and tumble hooligans and these sex workers. I like when this sex worker winks at him. He's like, good Lord. <laughs> oh, yeah, he's very offended by that. <laughs> a voice calls off the lady and her friends, and it's the captain. Well, dear, some other time, perhaps, one of the ladies says, I doubt it, Gray responds. Yikes. And the guy in the hat introduces himself as Mr. Salt, Robert W. Salt Esquire, late for Rat's Castle and bound for prison till I had proper manners beat into me. He leads Gray into a small door, and he says, shouldn't like to keep the captain waiting. Captain of what, may I ask, Gray says, Captain of most things, at one time or another, a man says, and we're introduced here to the captain. You want a proper name, he says. I've had a great many in my time, and none worth marking on a tombstone. Captain, they call me hereabouts, and captain suits me best. 
And we're also introduced to Mr. Bacon. He's Mr. Salt's twin. I guess I don't get, is he a pirate? What's happening? Yeah, well, he, uh, we're, we're going to talk a little bit more about him. But yeah, I guess he was probably a former pirate. Okay. And uh, this moment where he introduced him to Mr. Bacon, he says, like bookends, don't you think? And the captain oh. says, exactly alike. But they're not, sure, right? right? That's the whole joke. Sure. What yeah. about fraternal, fraternal twins? Yeah. Yeah. The captain offers Gray a shot, and he takes one with him. And so he's like, I like you. Yeah. Yeah. I thought this was interesting, because when Wellington offered him a drink, he said no. He said no. But with this guy, he's like, sure, you know. Those are some dirty shot glasses. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. They sure are. Yeah. But someone had to go through the effort of, like, drawing them in that manner. Yeah. So that's, you know what I mean? It's the only reason I bring that up is that, you know, that... He went out of his way to draw him like that. Yeah, and um, I think that's also a sign of the times too, right? Sure. And uh, or maybe he's just been drinking right before they got there. And the captain says that he's been watching Edward Gray for a while. He knows all about his missions. He knows all about the stuff that he's done for the Majesty. And uh, at, and of course, well done with those witches, mm. the Washbrook sisters and Webb. So those are the ones from the last story, Murders for Intent. Right. You know things you shouldn't, Captain Gray says. The captain tells Gray that he's 200 years old. His father's a sailor, his mother a cannibal. I thought that was interesting. Okay. The captain says Mr. Swift's book, Gulliver and His Travels, was based on him. He told Swift of his adventures while drunk. You won't believe me, he tells Gray, but there's proof somewhere back in that office. A cow no bigger than this. And the captain gestures between his thumb and his forefinger. No doubt you'd have seen it if Mr. Bacon had been a better housekeeper. And Mr. Bacon's like, it's true. Okay. <laughs> I was saying, I like how the captain's dress is more of a colonial period. Yeah, because sure, he's been yeah. alive for 200 years. So he's got like some mystical you know qualities about him and he's got all his research there too you can see that he's got his like little card catalogs and the books and everything and he's of course referencing gulliver's travels or travels into several remote nations of the world in four parts by lamel gulliver first a surgeon and then a captain of several ships which is the full title it's a prose satire by irish writer and clergyman jonathan swift in the book gulliver discovers tiny cattle and he brings them back with him to have people pay to look at them. Huh. That's a interesting way to describe it. <laughs> yeah. But that, that is what happens, right? I've never actually read the book. Well, I mean, didn't he get captured by the little people that tied up? Yeah. Yeah, that's I think that's the most iconic sort of scene from yeah. that. But when he comes back, he brings the cattle. Yeah. I remember with him and the tiny cattle, and he uses them to like yeah. show, right? Who's to the make guy us... that falls asleep for a long time? Rip Van Winkle. Yeah, that's no, that's a, that's a different thing. Yeah, <laughs> I, re- I remember kind of watching Gulliver's Travel as a young kid. I mean, like really young, like like four or five, and not really understanding what was going on and being kind of fucked up by the whole thing. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, it, it is really weird. I've never actually read it, to be honest. The captain leads Gray to Mister Wolf. And they enter a house to see his sister. Yeah, they, yeah, Mr. Wolf. Yeah, Mr. Wolf. They ask Sir Edward to pay the bill, two pounds, and Edward pays ten, to buy the discretion in this matter, as we are on Her Majesty's business. Mm. And they meet Mary. Well, and Mr. Wolf is kind of like, he's like a cigar-chomping, mutton-chop dude. <laughs> we kind of meet him. And we meet Mary, and I really love this panel where we open into her room, 
just um all the wallpaper yeah. and she's got all these pictures of flowers and frames yeah. all over her room and she's got like this confessional cabinet looking thing it's got like a screen on it do you think they built that for her or did they acquire that from a church <laughs> i don't know it's it's really interesting because i would think in you know i guess in a catholic confessional it's there's a there would be two walls right or it'd yeah. be like double that so this might be a custom thing sir edward mary says don't make too much of the title, Gray says. I came by it recently, and I'm not sure it suits me. But Mary thinks it suits him well. She says, you can call me Mary, and they share a little moment. Mr. Wolf, the brother, reminds Gray that he's on the Queen's business. Yeah, I don't think we've seen him smile yet. Yeah. And there's a very kind of a hint of a smile, the way that the mustache kind of There really up is, bit, yeah. yeah. And I like this panel, too, where they show her face. Uh, Steinbeck does a really good job of, of you know, showing her eyes. And I noticed that they focus on lilies. Is that a picture of lilies at the bottom? It is. Yeah, and so we've seen a lot of references to lilies in this series. Edward starts to question Mary, but she interrupts and asks that all questions be addressed directly to Zora. We cut to the scene at night, and Mary is praying in her booth. She asks to be granted with strength to perform her mission. Now and always your true instrument. She is closed in the cabinet, and Mist comes out of the cabinet and informs this being Zora. And so I was wondering, is this like ectoplasm, like Johan? Yeah, I think that that's definitely what's going on. And I think that the we were talking about the cabinet earlier. I think that's really just kind of a... It serves more of an aesthetic purpose. So, you know, this is kind of the very... Like you said earlier, Aubrey, it's very Victorian. Everyone's got the high collars and the, yeah, right. know, the sleeves all the way to the wrist and all that sort of stuff. So maybe just to give her a little dignity because she looks kind of freaked out right, when she's yeah. like this. Yeah. Kind of, uh, she's very – she looks dead. Right. And it's kind of gross. And so it's sort of a little – you know, a little privacy for her looking like yeah, that sort of a thing. Like the social nicety right. or yeah. kind sure. of like... um That makes sense. And with a screen, it adds the... Yeah, uh, a little discretion there. Yeah. But I like this idea of the this like ectoplasm coming through the screen. Yeah. You know, and then it forms this like hooded woman. I like Mr. Mutton Chop down well, there sitting would... in the chair. Yeah, she's <laughs> <What's> chilling. <laughs> That's he's Mr. Like, Wolf, yeah, the he's brother. All, he's all like, yeah, I've seen this. <laughs> is she wearing a habit? Is that a nun's habit? It kind of looks like that, yeah. yeah. I, think she's, I think it might be a habit. See, but I am come down from my masters, a short time returned to the earth to serve the brotherhood of man. And Gray asks about Donald Blackwood. Blackwood, yes, he is here in the company of care of spirits, for his passing out of your world was terrible. He is called for and will presently come. I wonder, Gray says. You doubt it, the woman says. You don't believe in me, Edward Gray? I believe that you may be an agent of the devil, he says. It's been my experience. Poor man, the woman says, that you see devils everywhere. And Mr. Wolf has fallen asleep in the chair. <laughs> These lilies are very shades of Mignola. Yeah. Yeah. What shall I do to convince you, poor man? And we kind of see those lilies fall. I really like that panel. All this is really beautiful. Yeah. She asks him to take her hand, and he says he would rather not. But he wants to see in the cabinet. And then Wolf wakes up. He's like, hey, that's going to cost extra. That's all he cares <laughs> about is money and making money off of his sister. And she says, poor man, look. And he's just like, good Lord, what have you done to her? And we see Mary in there she's praying. Sort of in this pose. Yeah, but she's all, um, she yeah, she's Withered. dead. Yeah. yeah. She is blessed in her gift. She surrenders a portion of herself, her own flesh, so that I may assume physical form to walk amongst you. When I withdraw, she will be restored. We have done this many times. Here, take my hand. She offers her hand again. This, way. this time, Edward takes it. 
There is something you want to tell me, he says. I know you, Edward Gray. You are spoken of in high places. Many faces smile down upon you. You labor in the service of angels. Well, that's a comfort to know. And the woman says, do not be too quick to thank me for the news. Remember the fate of so many in that service. And we see this painting of a, somebody being flayed. It's, yeah, it's like a, is it like a martyr kind of a yeah. scene. Yeah. She says, a phantom walks at your back, hooded, its face hidden from my view. But across its brow, a single word is written in fire. Acheron. Four infernal rivers that disgorge into the burning lake, their bayful streams abhorred sticks. The flood of deadly hate, sad Acheron of sorrow, black and deep. These dudes are quoting John Milton as though he's some sort of a prophet from right. scripture. It's fine. It's it's more interesting than the actual Bible to me. Like, it's a more interesting read if you've ever read Paradise Lost. Right. Like, it's, you know, it's a little more captivating, I guess. But I guess... I don't know if this is, have you noticed people treat Paradise Lost like it's an addendum to the Bible? Like oh, yeah, totally. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's, is he writing parts of the Bible now? Right, yeah. You know what I mean? So I just thought that was really weird. I, and it's it's not just in this story. I mean, I've a lot of people talk about stuff from Paradise Lost as though it's, you know, part of, right. I think, Christianity now. Sure. And so I guess to me, it just seems like fan fiction becomes canon mm-hmm. kind of a deal <laughs> it's, it's almost as similar as like uh, dante's inferno also sure yeah, yeah that's dante's exactly inferno dante's inferno for sure yeah. absolutely that's even more so yeah, yeah. maybe that uh i think an even bigger example dante's inferno people take that and they're like well you do know that this that and the other and all this stuff and i'm like thinking to myself that's from dante's fucking inferno <laughs> also these these guys are writing this fan fiction and it becomes canon and I don't know what to do with that information. It's just so weird and yeah. funny. Like, I I don't know. It's just very interesting to <laughs> it, me how... It really is. It comes up again and again. Like, yeah. it's just a very weird... Like, I just think to myself, like, what? Is that part of the Bible now? I don't... It's just so hard to keep track. Right. Yeah. It's become kind of in, in all intertwined yeah. with all those things. Absolutely. In ancient Greek mythology, Acheron was known as the River of Woe and was one of the five rivers of the Greek underworld. The word is of uncertain etymology. We know that Gray is going to become this hooded, cursed figure in the afterlife yeah, somewhere. That's when this got interesting yeah. for me. I woke up here. Right. This is the scene where I was like, oh, I can stop scrolling through pages of dialogue. Like, this is fucking cool. And this, I immediately recognized this weird robe. That I was like, oh, that's the, that's the connection. Right. That's where it. We we yeah. know that this is going to happen, and so we were we learned at the end of Darkness Calls that that hooded figure is Edward Gray. Yeah, and, and so I got immediately interested in like what happened right. to and, make this thing happen. And like, Hecate what's... told him, "You're going to suffer more than any man has ever suffered," Ugh. and all this kind of stuff, right? It's and so foreshadowing. Yeah, stuff. and and Zora tells Edward Gray that it's a warning. But just then, Donald Blackwood appears, but he won't tell what he did with the bag. Oh, and yeah, geez. he's like he, he looks very affected. Yeah, by what's happened. He's like, yeah, <laughs> he's just kind of all dazed there, right? And he's just got like the dots um, instead of dialogue. He swore not to tell where the bag was, and just as he's about to tell them where he threw it, they hear these large booms. And I like these panels as they all kind of look at each other. They're like these panels are like different colors too. From the rest of it is very dark. I just like all that kind of tension building. And suddenly the men arm themselves and the door explodes open, but we don't see anything on the outside. That's a really well done action yeah. shot. It's yeah. hard to make movement happen 
like that in a very, you know what I mean? Yeah. And we see that the monster is behind Mr. Wolf, but he does, he's not seeing that. He just says, who's going to pay for that? <laughs> and the vampire crunches down on him. And so I love this action right here. It's very, yeah, it's very Mignola-esque. Yeah, this monster has a great design. It, it, it's really nice, but uh, Stenbeck has his own like take on it. It's a little bit more detailed. I yeah. really like that. Chapter three. And so we pick up on them fighting the vampire. All this is really well done. I love the the monster is much more bigger now too. When yeah. we saw it, it was a little, little hairier too. We're into yeah. some proper classic horror stuff. Yeah, there's a great action beat. He throws Mister Salt at Mister Bacon. Gray comes up and he's taking out that sword, the club, but the monster just bats it out of his hand. I think and- it's a really everything else around the monster is super muted color very cool colors oh yeah and yeah, anything yeah. that has to do with the monster is just this ex- like the warmest possible yeah. tones i like love that you point that out this bright bright red this deep red and it's um in the the orange and all that stuff it's just very um i love that yeah we also see that edward is carrying this club sword or whatever it is he's carrying it in this little case he's opening the case yeah. to take it out and the monster goes right for the cabinet where Zora is, where Mary is. So the captain comes up behind it and stabs it. I like how he says here, <laughs> pustulant boil, man crab. He's just slinging <laughs> any kind of insults yeah. he can come up with. And Gray comes up from behind and he stabs the vampire with his double tip sword and then he axes it in the head. It's e- like chalk as he kind of gets it in there. It's really good. And there's just, like, blood splattering everywhere. This action is just crazy. You can see Mr. Wolf gets a a good splatter of blood all over him. Gray, again, raises the sword and is able to get the creature to flee. So, again, that light comes out. And with his prayer, the creature flees away. They're just left there. Mr. Bacon cries over his dead twin, Mr. Salt. So this is kind of a sad little moment. He's, like, too late. And, man, his arm is just, like barely hanging yeah, on by like gross. oh yeah they do a good job with the gore here you can see where he really like took a big chunk out of his shoulder and i like how mr wolf he's got blood all over his face still and he's just lighting his cigar like i wonder if he's in shock or he just doesn't care or he doesn't know that he's got all that blood on him i think he's probably in shock and well you yeah. see the cigar is shaking a little oh yeah you're right mary's all right gray says that the vampire seemed dead set on getting at her she says it's because she knows where its bones are and she leaves Gray to appear. So we learn that right before Zora dematerialized, I guess she was able to get the information from Blackwood on where the bones are. And this is kind of a funny moment, too, because they have I guess they've hired these dock workers, these two guys on the side with sure. this machine, yeah. to go down there and get the bag. So it leads to some funny moments while they're talking. Edward is still thinking about Mary's condition while in her trance. It was like Lord Wellington when he died. Gray says, I wonder, when Wellington discovered that skeleton, could the spirit of that creature have attached itself to him and later materialized from him as your own spirit guide does from you? A spirit guide using a person as a medium without that person's knowledge or consent, it's too horrible to imagine, Mary says. But possible, Edward says. The thing would have to be strong. There was an old woman back home. I was always told to stay away from her. People close to her used to get weaker. When they'd get clear of her, they'd get well. Mary says. Edward says, Saunders died in the desert and Ashby aboard the ship with no marks on them. The creature feeding off what? Life energy? Then Griffin, Wellington said it looked like something small had been gnawing at him. 
As the creature became more powerful, it began to assume a more physical form and therefore would need to feed on something more physical, like blood. And we see these two guys, they're listening to them talk, and they're like, mad as hatters, Jim. <laughs> and he's working for the government. It's sad. <laughs> and, you know, they, they keep on talking. They're putting together that, as a spirit, the monster could enter into a locked room and then turn physical. It's going after people that know where its bones are, right? So it's a smart enemy. It's it's trying to keep itself a secret and only kill the people that it needs to. It's afraid of its own bones. And just then, the Victorian pier guys, they pull up this giant... Um... Now, they've got some tattoos here. Are you seeing that? Oh, yeah. I like their little tattoos. tattoos. Yeah, I, I like think, that little detail. I think back then in this time period, tattoos are definitely just like, okay, these are the lowest of the low in society. Uh, yeah. These guys are just... Right. You know, they're, um, they're what's it called? They're scallywags or whatever. Just a quick note, too, on the art. I like how... He's, he's trying to keep it dynamic, as dynamic as it possibly can be when there's so much dialogue right. and all this stuff and all this like exposition. He's he's just, just the little things. He does what he can. Like the, her, the ribbons from her hat are blowing in the wind and her hair is blowing. Yeah. And she's got some sort of a shawl that she's clutching around herself so you know the wind is kind of cold. Right, yeah. So it's, it's just little details like that that I think is really um, stands out as it far as storytelling well, goes. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, you it, feel cold a little bit. You're it like, lets oh, us know the environment, yeah. It makes me want to get a blanket, you know, and it's just very... Um, and so these guys work in this weird machine. You can see like the tattoos and it's very... I don't know. The the details are what makes it yeah. for me, the story. And the diving suit guy comes up with the bag. And I like this little detail of like the fish and the crab coming up. Yeah, too, around I like him. this diving suit. <laughs> it's awesome. He's got the bag of bones. And I like this part where Gray's like, any trouble down there? And he's like, trouble? You were expecting trouble? The poor diving guy. Mary and Edward assume that it's because it can't go out during the day. Or it's too weak. It lost an amazing amount of blood. And these two guys are just <laughs> looking and they're like, what the shit? These guys are just... <laughs> This dapper-looking guy comes up, and he tells Edward Gray that he represents certain gentlemen interested in purchasing the contents of the bag. He reminds me of, uh, oh, what is this actor's name? I'm so sorry. That's okay. Who? From uh, the Batman movie, and he's turns out to be Rachel Ghoul and oh, oh uh, Liam Neeson. I love Liam Neeson. I can't believe I can't think of his name. He does look like Liam Neeson. He looks Neeson, a little bit like in, in that role. If he had like his hair dyed black, maybe. Oh, that's well, he had, doesn't he have kind of the um. You know, because oh, Rachel yeah. Ghoul has the yeah, the, you're uh, right. the silver yeah. temp at the temples kind sure. of thing going on. So that's great. Just anyway, it yeah. was funny because I was thinking the Mister um, Witchfinder here looks a lot like Christian Bale. Interesting. <laughs> oh yeah. Interesting. From this that's... interview that I saw sure, him. Sure, sure. That would be a good casting. Interesting. He could do the accent. Well, we're always trying to cast well, these is. anyway. Well, he is British. I would yeah. put um, Winona Ryder, a la the '90s, in her role. Oh, for Mary. I think because her face a little bit in some of these yeah. panels looks a little Winona Ryder. -y. Yeah. Uh, I like that. And she's done the Victorian. We were just watching Bram Stoker's oh, Dracula. Man, that, movie so, yeah. was fucking, <laughs> that movie was fucking amazing. And here's the thing. I had never seen it, which is astonishing. I don't think I all. had ever seen it in in chronological order. I like really, I had yeah. just seen pieces of it, I think. I really can't believe I had never seen that movie. And it was great. That, yeah. Well, I loved it. Just I had always wanted to see Keanu Reeves <laughs> try to use a British accent. And no, I love this guy. Come on, Counter yeah, is great. He's but the best. yeah, well, I'm not trying to. I'm not trying to. You know. Um, well, think of it this like that movie came out right after he did Bill and Ted and oh, uh, Point Break. Point Break. Yeah. yeah. And I'm not. Uh, I'm not trying to hate on him. I think he's like, fantastic. I just had always wanted to see it, and I got it, and it was great. And 
the casting in this movie was great. Gary Oldman was really Gary Oldmaning it up in yeah, there. Yeah, he does and, a great job. Oh my god. Oh man. Yeah. And uh, who else is in that movie? It's fucking Anthony Hopkins. Anthony Hopkins. Yeah. This is Anthony Hopkins singing it up. Right? Yeah, man. And, and so it was Coppola just, directed it. Oh, it was it's fucking really great. It was fucking great. It's worth checking out if you've never seen Bram Stoker's Dracula oh, by man. Coppola. It's awesome. And Mignola had a big part of it. Yeah. He, he did the comic. So yeah. it, that was one of the things I got for my birthday was so the cool. hardcover uh, black and whites of, of the comic. Stuff. I need to go back and watch that movie. I haven't seen it in like 25 years. Well, Mignola, yeah. yeah. uh, Mike Mignola will post about it like, oh, watching Bram Stoker's Dracula in the studio today. And he'll have this right. like, commentary yeah. about it. It's good stuff. So this dapper guy Liam Neeson, he gives them <laughs> he gives them this card of his agency or whatever, and it's a it's an eye of raw. Yeah, it's just a wadget there. So what did you guys? What did that make you think of? It's the Helioptic Brotherhood of the pre- the those little bastards. The Helioptic Brotherhood. That's right. Ugh. Dun dun dun. So when Gray says that the bones are the property of Her Majesty, the dapper guy, he threatens Gray. He's making a mistake that he'll regret. The captain says that this dapper guy, he's not Liam Neeson. His name is August Swain, or Liam Neeson as August Swain, maybe. Oh, there you go. And he works for the Heliopic Brotherhood of Ra. These guys were the same ones from the Hellboy story, Dr. Karp's Experiment. The woman in black from Into the Silent Sea was also part of the organization, and most recently in Garden of Souls, we learned that the Heliopic Brotherhood brought Panya back to the living world and tried to seclude her before she left with the Oan Society, only to be stuck in the same situation with them. All these Lester Crowley-looking motherfuckers. Yes, <laughs> and so Stenbeck does some really cool-looking ceremony. I really like all this. Sure. Where they're performing the ceremony. He does just all the little details, too, on the robe and everything. Uh, yeah, it's good y- shit. You're right. Yeah, the details make this really good. There's another one holding a brandy sniffer. Uh, yeah, a little brandy <laughs> snifter right there. And this, you know, you can see like they're wearing the little, and that there's like a cartouche over here, and there's it's good stuff. Yeah. And on this next panel, uh, on the next page, I mean, we see these. I don't know. Did you see these close-ups of these yeah. little card cabinets? I did um, like that. These little mm-hmm. file cabinets. So we get some Laura's Easter off. eggs here. It says one of them says L E Call. And we know who Langdon Everett Call yeah. was. One of them says Ensner, who was one of those guys from uh, in the Victorian armor in the last one. Oh, yeah. One of them says A. Glaren. So this was a very brief Easter egg, but he was the guy that was the special guy that got to unwrap Ponya, Adam oh. Glaren. He was the head of the Heliopic Brotherhood. We see a book that says O.N. Society, who are those guys Langdon Call was involved with. We see these years HBR, so that makes me think Helioptic Brotherhood of Ra. Yeah. And then we also get two other ones that we'll get. They're going to be Easter eggs later in this issue. We see Eugene Remy and Larzad. I was going to say that the whole wall of the posters that yeah. they oh, yeah. shot is so too. fantastic. I spent a lot of time looking at this stuff. I really like the like, ball-pointed pens. Like, oh, yeah. I was, was going to bring that up, <laughs> yeah. too. Yeah. And so There's you're like a right. Boxing guy. Mary points at this um, wall of flyers, old school flyers. I really like this. And one of them is Shambhala Church of the Inner World. And she says there. So she's getting visions from um, that encounter with Zora and Mr. Blackwood. Why there? I'm not sure, she says. Just a feeling, really. So they enter into this building. It's like a church of the inner world. And they see all these people in pews, and they all look dead. And we can see, we focus on some of them, they have bites on their necks and on their wrists. They're all dead. 
But they're chilling like Jonestown style. Right. Not to make light of that situation, this horrible thing that happened to those people. Well, I, just, I, I just mean, I'm just trying to allude to the fact that they're all, it's very, will. they're all seated very calmly. I was going like, to say Heaven's Gate. Heaven's Gate, sure. Any kind of a death cult, yeah. you know, really. Um, it's just very, they're all sitting there and not, like she said, there's no sign of a struggle or whatever. Right. You know? And there's this, we get this piece of scripture and we also get this model that they have. It looks like the inside of a hollow earth. And I looked down into the earth and saw green fields and a shining land and a golden city. And above, suspended in the center of the earth, I saw a second sun. And I knew the inner world would be one of eternal day, no more darkness. And in the end, all shadows and all mysteries will be no more. So I guess this is what this is what sure. they believed in, right? Wasn't there an actual person who was trying to get people to believe this like a similar the- theory i don't know i should have looked into I that i wish i yeah. had i wish i could gr- recall what the heck well i, I do believe the hollow earth is some, some sort of yeah theory. i think i think that is based in some i didn't right. i should have looked that there up was an I, episode didn't. Of the, I hate to keep bringing this back to the x-files there was an episode of the x-files where i think it was a Jose Chung's from Outer Space. Uh-huh. Actually, where at, at the end of the episode, they're recapping it. They're all kind of wrapping it up. And the guy that had claimed to have been visited by the men in black, one of them played very wonderfully by Jesse Ventura, had uh, <laughs> he was writing this manuscript and he gave it to Mulder. And Mulder was like, oh, shit, it's a firsthand account of an you know uh, alien experience. And then he read it and he was like, oh, it's fucking it's fan fiction. And Scully was like, yeah, this is not good. Right. It's not even good. You know what I mean? It's 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 not even good, man. It's not even good writing. And and Mulder was so disappointed. And then that guy went on to be like a kind of a charismatic cult leader, and yes. he was standing in front of this thing that looked very much like this thing. Yeah, of like the center of the right. world. So I wonder if he was supposed to be kind of representing a real life, like if he was a proxy for like yeah. a real life dude. And I I hate to keep going down this same rabbit hole, but I recently watched all these ridiculously detailed documentaries about cult leaders and various stuff and how it starts off innocently enough but then pretty soon it gets real fucking right like real wacky real quick where people are believing this far out shit that's actually harming them and they're you know it's kind of the cult leaders become abusive and you know it gets weirder and weirder to where everyone's like they cut they get cut off from all their families and all this crazy shit and so but i've seen like four or five documentaries about various different cult people now and so i'm kind of really interested in in all but i can't recall any details of anything ever so such is my curse (laughs) no i know what you mean it's just like you know um i watched a lot of documentaries about different cults like like you were saying about jonestown right yeah yeah. they started off as like like a pretty good you know church well uh, a lot of these they were very open with different races and all that and then it just spiraled down to what it became (laughs) a lot of these things build themselves as yeah a a place to belong yeah and um it kind of preys on people who have they feel lost they feel like they've lost hope and they don't belong and they're a little weird and no one will accept them and he's like well you have a family here you're accepted here and what we're doing is we're actually creating a better way to live you know a kind way to live and and we have a a garden here that we all um, tend the garden together and it's very peaceful and very yeah. soothing and therapeutic and we eat these vegetables we grow ourselves and it's like well it's actually you're building like this compound 
to be self-sustaining so that they never have to leave and it's, it turns out to be this really weird thing right so yeah. like i i've watched a bunch of people i had never heard before stuff i had never heard before and even i watched this one thing where this guy was like made it his business to go get people out of cults like you would find this guy and he would be like hey help me get my family oh. back and so this guy like got arrested like so many times and then was always just kind of like got off and would go do it again wow and so yeah. all this he would get out of jail and go fucking do it again and he would go basically kidnap these people who had been kidnapped right so he's like kidnapping them back yeah. and he's trying to reverse the brainwashing that That's was crazy. done and this the brainwashing thing is just such a horrible thing to happen because it's these people who it's not that they're weak-willed it's just that they're they're very emotional and maybe mm-hmm. they're a little unstable maybe they've lost hope or maybe they're you know they they well, had not, a hard time in life and well it's not even that i mean it's just like you know i mean even people and anybody can be successful to it it's it can happen like, to anyone it's just like the the way that you're yes offered something yeah. it's not yeah. even necessarily that yeah. that they're especially yeah. vulnerable like you said yeah it's, it, it's just something slowly and yeah. the next thing you know hey you're in a cult though well they've been exploited and they've been abused and they've yeah. been brainwashed and so this whole thing and so he would kidnap them back right and they would be resistant to the thing and he would kind of be like he would do this like process where he would try and break down the brainwashing and it's just this very like and it's this very thing well like were they there willingly or were they there because they were coerced and like now he kidnapped them and that's definitely against their will but is it really and is it for the better and so it's this very weird muddled gray area yeah yeah. it is it's morally ambiguous so it's this thing but their family was like no we know that they're being harmed here we know that they're being hurt and then the people would come out of it and give interviews like yeah that was so fucked up i'm so glad to like i I was rescued and i thank this guy every day right and then there were some people who were like no you know i know that the cult was bad but whatever and it's just this very so i went down this wormhole of and of course the the whole thing that was on netflix that that whole deal was very weird and complicated and with the guru dude oh right right yeah and then um Oh, wild, 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 wild yeah. Country, yeah, and then there was some other stuff that there, there's everywhere. So you can find all these different documentaries about very various things like that. But I just, yeah. I, I, I go down these rabbit holes, yeah. and before I know it, I'm just, I, I'm down <laughs> this whole thing where I never knew about any of this shit. And now I know more about it than I even care to know. Right. So, <laughs> so I actually had a different thought. To be honest, to me, this whole hollow earth thing started to look kind of like a, a Dyson sphere. And oh yeah. So the inside is like the uh, the world yeah. and it's being powered, but we're and that means we're living on the outside of a Dyson sphere. Uh, on the Dyson oh, sphere, yeah. Wow. There you go. I like that. Yeah. yeah, it's really cool, and it's all internally powered. Isn't that the thing where the different levels of um, it depends c- yeah. civilizations and yeah. societies and mm-hmm. stuff, and at the, at this certain level, you begin to build these Dyson spheres, and it's where you like things. build something that like whose theory was that? I can't remember the name of the guy. It's Stop. like a specific guy. Wasn't it? His name Dyson. Yeah. Well, his name was Dyson. Yeah, that's easy enough to remember. God, I'm so fucking bad with remembering people's names. What's his first name? I have no idea. Sure. No, I, yeah, but. We're we're not on first name basis. (laughs) But to kind of just jump on what you were talking about, Danielle, with all the kind of slipping into a cult. Yeah. You know, all the things that you're talking about are things that actually happened. Yeah. And they didn't even have these supernatural things. Like we've seen in these stories, like if you have someone that turns into a frog, right, or they could physically transform, like you might go, "Oh shit, this that's, is real." Yeah, that's, that, that's the real shit to be worshiping. 
And in this story, bringing it back to this, yeah. they had this monster right. that was coming and it was taking some of their blood. And when it would take the blood, it would get stronger. And so these people had really bought into it because there was like a physical, weird, yeah. supernatural thing, you know. And they've so they've been stolen away from their families. Right. They've been, they've all uh, killed themselves and all this stuff. And because they saw something that was physically manifesting, it was right. real. Yeah. And so that's you know the, even kind of ratchets it up a yeah. notch. And Mary finds one of the guys still alive, and that's what he talks about. You know, I guess he was the pastor, and he said that the vampire appeared two nights ago. He was weak. So this guy called all his people to come help, and they offered their blood, seeing this uh, extravagant creature. And then he came a, uh, again. He said it was time to go, to enter into the hollow of the earth. We'd leave our mortal bodies behind. And the people all trusted this guy, so the vampire killed all of them. Right. And he saved that guy for last, and in the end, he told him the truth. He said, in my youth, I had visions of Hyperborea, land of her first people. I saw her in her glory and her fall. The ancients misused their powers, worshipped false gods, and brought about their own ruin. And we see another image of the black goddess here. Which we've found out is probably Hecate. Yeah, it, it is Hecate. The survivors fled. Some used their powers to leave this world. The rest descended into the inner world, Shambhala, a new garden of Eden. But my vision was a lie. The devil showed me an underground hell where those ancients built war machines that would one day rise up to conquer the world. And so we saw all this. Those were the machines that they found in the Hollow Earth story. I like the Shambhala um, thing here with the like dinosaurs. and the... Yeah, that's what the inner world, that's what they, I guess, yeah. said that it would look like. Journey to the center of the earth. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Yeah. <laughs> they grew in vats creatures to tend those machines. Uh slaves who finally rebelled against their masters and slaughtered them all and i just Jeez, love these yeah. panels are crazy Wild. it reminds me kind of of the the Uruk-hai, Uruk-hai. yeah i was about to Uruk-hai. say aubrey yeah. there's your there's your lord of the rings thing there oh yeah i was thinking of that too and we also saw that in hollow earth they talked about this how they all rebelled over their masters what became of those creatures i don't know maybe they're still down there but one at least found its way to the surface and fell prey to savage man. Or early man, as the case may be. Right. Because savage is kind of not a good word. Well, I think it's just the way that the the particular characters Yeah, right. absolutely. They're this, yeah. yeah, very British. Yeah. And then so we see they shot this monster down with arrows, and then that's the same one that they found the bones of, right? Yeah, and that's, yeah. You, that's you why were the arrowheads the arrowhead. were there. Yeah. Thanks for pointing out that detail earlier. It provides the continuity here. But that creature's come again, undead. Edward asks where it's now, and they say it's in the cellar. And so they hear this loud roar, and Edward thinks about his sword. It's downstairs in the with the pew. Mm. And we go to the next chapter, chapter four. The vampire, he comes crashing through the door, right? And it's even bigger. It seems like every time we see it, it's huger yeah. and huger. And Mary throws the bag of bones at it. And when she does, the creature screams out, and it breaks through a wall to go outside. The captain tells Gray to get his club, but Gray says he doesn't have time, and he runs after the monster, and he enters an alley, and he gets a gun pulled on him. There's a masked man there waiting for him, and he's a member of the Helioptic Brotherhood. Well, Sir Edward Gray, what have you been up to? Communing with the spirits? 
that's your line, isn't it? Fortune tellers and ghosts. He tells Gray, you're still wearing blinders, my man. Bible stories and fairy tales. It's the greater mysteries we're on to. It's fucking what red you... pill nerd. Yeah. What do you think old Remy saw <laughs> down in the tomb in Egypt? You don't know? And Larzad said, behold, and light sprang out of his third eye, and the darkness of that place became as day. And things hidden since before the coming of man were revealed. And it was like in the beginning when Amon Ra and his great eye looked into the abyssal wastes of the nun and saw it and had understanding of it. And Edward Gray is like madness. And the red pill guy is like, no, sir, it's science. Is it though? The electric eye of science <laughs> shall lay bare all mysteries and its science will tame your beast. And Edward's like, tame, and we see that these guys are trying to take down this monster. This really reminds me of that thing where they were, uh, it's a Hellboy story. Yes, you're absolutely right, Danielle. So, uh, Dr. Carp's experiment. Dr. Carp's experiment. And in Dr. Carp's experiment, they shocked Hellboy with these exact suits, and it looked exactly like this. And so, for part of the trivia this week, I'll be posting a side-by-side panel of them taking down Hellboy, and then trying to take down this beast. And of course, they think that they can take this thing down and, I guess, research it or whatever. And so when Home Dude says it's science yeah. and Doctor uh, Witch Hunter <laughs> says madness, you know, just because it might be some sort of science does not mean it's not madness. Right, yeah. <laughs> and uh Hogwash. The helio the Helioptic Brotherhood guy, he says that I asked you to come up with a fair price for that creature's bones, but Edward's still thinking about it. I'm still thinking about it. And so as the smoke clears we see that the monster killed all these guys, right? We just get the body of one of these. The upper torso just spluts on the ground. His intestines are all hanging out. And in that shock, Edward takes the moment to punch the gun out of this dude's hand and then punch him in the face. He's a weenie. Damn you, Gray. Damn you to hell. (laughs) And we get this really cool moment. I love this scene where the monster approaches Edward and he just stares it down, right? He's just just like, he doesn't, he just looks at it and the monster just turns and walks away. Yeah. Yeah. What was that? Well, and they talked about they talked about with Mary that it doesn't want to. It's trying to kill as few people as possible and stuff yeah. like that, or and it's afraid of its bones. Well, and those guys were definitely provoking, right? Yeah. That you know, I think that that's that's another example of like, well, who's really the bad guy? Yeah. Yeah. I that's mean, true. Yeah. I like this little sign in the next page. This little rooster head. I like that guy. What page are you on? I'm on a, the next page. Oh, okay. Already. So there's no there's so there's still another page where the captain and Mary come up. Mary's got the bones and the captain has Edward's sword. And so the monster flees and on the next page they're kind of all taking a little break after all this and we get the little newspaper kid. He's like "Extra, extra. <laughs> Crazy buggers done to death in a church." <laughs> Read all about it. And um they're having a drink here. I like seeing them at a bar, so See this this place seems like it had better things with the ale chips, yeah, uh, gin and pies. Yeah, yeah. I don't want, I want no jelly some... eel. No, no, for sure. I want a, a big stein, a mug of beer. I want to point out these two guys that are drinking. One of them says, "Hollow Earth, Mister Jenkins. It's a strange world, Mister Dean. Damn strange." I'm still on the I'm still on the signs, the carved wooden signs. Oh, like you're on the chicken. previous page. Yeah, because well, that that was uh, back in the day. A lot of people, I guess, like some people could read and some people could not read. Uh-huh. So you would have like pictures of like 
This is where the butcher's is, and it would have like a hog with like a oh right a butcher's right. knife or something, and like this is where the whatever. So I wonder, like I don't know if that's like a chicken feed store or something, right? Or maybe it's just like a a pub, and it's called like the Golden Rooster or something. Right, I don't right. know. I just like the little details. I just think it's cool. And uh, like you said, like the dirty little paper boy and stuff. Yeah, extra, extra. <laughs> well, if you notice on the building back there, it says uh, Molly and Cox and. Maybe it's like cock a little do or oh, something. Cool. Like that. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So Well, they call chickens, or aren't they called cocks? Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I get bogged down with all these little details. I just like no. the, the way that he takes the time to, it's great. to draw all this stuff. Gray and Mary have a moment here in the bar. Sir Edward doesn't like how Mr. Wolf sells her gift. Mary says she doesn't want for anything. We are all not free to choose our own paths in the world. And Gray tells his backstory, and they cheer to simpler times. And uh, she has to she has to do this whole soliloquy on how, well, I don't want you to think that I normally drink beer, but uh, yeah, I'll, uh, I'll oh, definitely right, have yeah. a beer today, right? Because it's been a really fucking rough day, and we're going <laughs> to have some beer. So she's drinking this gigantic stein of yeah, beer. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> yeah, but I just, it's, it's funny that, like, I guess whatever, at that time period... Mm-hmm. ladies who would be drinking beer oh, were yeah, considered right. to be some sort of like a a lower oh, form right. of, yeah. of person i don't know i think it's ridiculous but it's great it's kind of funny how she has to she has to give this whole disclaimer oh well i don't normally drink beer but right <laughs> uh so mary asks what turned a game warden's son to sir edward and he says something happened when i was a boy trouble i got myself mixed up in it and when it was done i'd gain a certain reputation Word of that reached certain gentlemen here. They were having some trouble, so they sent for me, and I come to help. And I did. Word of that reached Mr. Disraeli, and eventually Her Majesty herself. And it's true you saved her from witches, Mary asks, and we get a flashback of murderous intent. It's true, Edward says, as he drinks. And they talk about his label, Witchfinder. Same as old Henry Hood, who hanged 300 women in less than two years. So that's why he doesn't like them. right because he Henry like... Hood's a fucking he's a bad bloke he's a and they talk like about it a little bit here by all accounts he started out as an honest man but somewhere along the way well they say that in the end he'd become so corrupt that the devil himself came for him and we heard them talking about this in Darkness right. Calls as well with the yeah. and Stenbeck does a good version of Figredo's panel from that. Yeah. And put out his eyes and buried him alive. My mother was from Cottonley, not far from where it was supposed to have happened. She used to tell us that Hood still haunted the woods there, cursed, unable to ever truly die. So this is in the 1890s, and then Hellboy Darkness Calls takes place like in, I guess, in the 2010s. So, you know, he's been there all this time, haunting the woods. I've heard that too, Edward says. Cursed. And we get another uh, visual of that Acheron and that's, hooded figure. That's the Edward Gray yeah. thing that we've seen previously. Yes. That's yes. really coming together now. It really is. And she's like, you're nothing like him and you never could be. No, you're right, of course, Edward says. But we know that he's going to... All the foreshadowing, is, yeah, yeah. He is going to end up like that. It's a very... What do they call that? They call it like a... Tra- it's a uh, Like a tragedy? Tra- well, yeah, but it's sort of word. There's a specific word for that. It's like, like a, ironic tragedy or tragic irony. There you go. I don't mm-hmm. know. Mary says Gray is nothing like Hood. He would have hanged her for consorting with spirits. Gray thinks it's impossible to think of such a thing, and they hold hands. And here we do kind of see him smile. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But suddenly, Mister Wolf comes in with his crew, 
and he's accusing Gray of mooning over his sister while poor people are being murdered. He says at their prayers, but like, do they, are they trying to make it seem like those people were praying to the classic British, 1800s British idea of God? Yep. Like in Jesus? Wow. Because they were definitely doing some like- uh, Other thing, yeah. Yeah, helioptic, whatever, praying to a demon stuff. I don't know. It just seems very. No, you're he's, absolutely he's kinda, right. He's trying to use that. And everything that he says here is yeah. he's just being an asshole. It's all, yeah, exactly. If it was lords and ladies with their throats cut, you'd be doing something about it. Right. Or whatever. And then so the captain comes in and he kind of whisks Edward away. And when they go outside, he's like, I don't like that bastard. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think any of us do. He tells Gray that he figures that the creature is trying to stay away from its bones, and they need to reattach the ghost to his bones in order to kill it. The captain says he knows a man who could have done it. Gustav Strobel. And so this is going to be a really... Um, do you guys remember that name? Gustav Strobel? Gustav Strobel? I know that I've heard it. So this is a really... Yeah, uh, th- this would be hard to remember. Remember when they Buster Oakley gets his wish, Kevin Nolan and the oh, horse yeah. people and all that? Yeah. yeah. The little boy that was doing the ceremony. Oh, the book. The book that he had oh, was written by Gustav yeah. Strobel. So that's this guy. Little Easter egg. He was a strange man who practiced such things, the darker philosophies, black magic, Grace says. That's a tool of the devil. And the captain points out that the double-tipped sword is not a Christian artifact, yet very effective. And when the captain brings up that it's magic, Gray changes the subject back to Strobel. Like, he doesn't want to hear that, you know? He doesn't want to accept that he's using things that are, right. you know... I like um, I like this little line where he... Go, he like, um, Edward Gray is specifying, oh, it's black magic. And right. this guy is, like, black, white, done up in spots, whatever, it's magic. Yes, I really yes, like that. Exactly. I thought that was yeah. great. And that's where he changes the subject back to Strobel, yeah. but... I do want to point out this panel where Strobel's like reading the book and those salamanders are, those red salamanders are kind of around him. I don't know why I found that so adorable, but I thought that was super cute. Oh, I I know what you mean. They're just kind of like marching around in a little line. It's kind of precious. But Strobel's dead, but he had a disciple who was mad as a snake and looks kind of familiar. He sure does. Do you remember who does this guy look like? That guy. Which guy? Temple. Where he's got the long gold fingernails. Yeah, Liz's mystery Liz's man. Liz's mystery man. Yeah. What's the eyes that do it? Sure enough, one day he snapped and killed Strobel and half cooked him before the cops took him away. The captain has arranged for them to meet with his weirdo in Bedlam. And so this guy is Martin Guilford. So finally we know a name for him. He used to be the head of Egyptology at the Historical Society till he fell in with a bad crowd, devil worshippers and the such. He was trouble at first at Bedlam, but now he's mostly quiet. So now I'm going to point out another piece of trivia because we're just getting a lot of connections here. Yeah. Guilford. Okay, so we know that he's the mystery guy, right? From Liz's vision. And he was also the head of Egyptology at the Historical Society. Do you remember that when we yeah. referenced the head of Egyptology? Yeah. In that scene with Panya, there was that uh, that creepy guy from back then. And they were like, oh, I can't believe he's showing his face here. Yeah. And he was also the creepy guy that they didn't like that Panya was talking to. And so this is the same character the all same the way guy, through, yeah. right? He oh. was there when they unwrapped Panya. And then he went crazy, now he's here, and then he eventually ends up being this mystery guy. So it's all kind of tying together stuff that we've been learning and 
now we have a working knowledge of this guy. Guilford greets Gray and the captain, and the monster howls outside. And that's how that issue ends. And they've got him all chained up. It's pretty creepy. They create a really good little creepy, gross scene here in Bedlam. Chapter 5. At Bedlam, Guilford calls upon Corey, Persephone, Urshagal, which we've talked about before, Adonis, Thoth, and Anubis to hear him, to help him. The creature should be in their keeping. And he's built a temple out of bones of the creature. So as he's doing this ceremony, he's writing these sigils. He's got all these candles and he's got like this altar or whatever that he's made out of the bones. Now, initially... You're, you're made to think that this is blood he's writing with, but it is a can of paint. Oh, you're right. Yeah. It is a can of paint. Into. <laughs> I was staring at that can. Good stuff. Gray is damned uncomfortable <laughs> with all this. And the captain says that we're using the devil's tools against him. Maybe, Gray says, but I fear it will cost us. Guilford draws a shape in the air, and outside the monster... Um, we can see that he got the paper boy. Extra, oh, extra. No. I got eaten by the monster. <laughs> Read all about it. Read all about it. And the monster goes after some cops, too. Guilford calls out to bring the monster to him. I like Grumph. Yeah. Where is Grumph? Oh, yeah. Where he gets the cop. And all this art is really good. Yeah, the thing where uh, he's writing the sigils is super cool. Yeah, I love that where he's kind of doing them in the air. We've seen some of that like in the Whittier Legacy. Yeah. We kind of saw something like that. And um, this is really messed up. So as Guilford is calling the monster, all the other inmates start bashing their heads into the Do not bars. not like that at all. It's so grisly. The captain offers Gray the sword, but Gray says the gun suits him better. They mention that he has silver bullets, but Gray says that didn't help him in the past. We are counting on you, Mr. Guilford, the captain says. And Lord protect us and forgive us for that, Gray says. I love this panel at the bottom as the monster is approaching again. What, yeah. what Stenbeck does with the shading and the blackness, um, it's just, uh, it's really beautiful. It's well done. Yeah. This little bit of color. He's got a little vapor coming off him. Yeah, and the little bit of color from the mouth. Yeah, um, just yeah, really, absolutely. Um, it just works really well. The blood of the inmates bashing their heads, it starts to fill the bottom of the place. It's fucking rowdy. And these blood eels start coming out it's or whatever. rowdy. <laughs> and also, uh, meanwhile, Guilford, he levitates the bones and they crash into the monster. And I love this panel. I mean, what can you say about this panel where they like meet or they join again? Yeah. This it's, whole page, actually, yeah. It's, a, it's like the spirit is kind of rejoining the bones or something. Yeah, and I just love this art. I don't know how to describe it. It's very reminiscent of Mignola style, but it's more... But it's, yeah, it's its own thing. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how to describe it, though. It's a little bit more... I don't, I don't know. know. It, it, appears, it appears more solid. I don't know how to say yes. it anyway. But I love this panel with them fighting these blood eels, and then there's uh, Martin Guilford's eyes. Just this whole page is just very well done. I really enjoy that. Give this thing back to its bones. Give it air to breathe, blood to flow in its veins. Grant me the power to set things right and thereafter dispose of it how you will. I got in that one panel, you see its intestines coming back. Yeah. And um, the monster, now made alive, appears behind Sir Edward and he just shoots it again. (laughs) He turns around and he shoots it and it falls to the ground. It's finally dead now because it's been binded back with its soul. Right. And... Everything kind of everything kind of goes away. Those blood eels go away and everything. Although it looks like those inmates are still pretty messed up. Uh, yeah. they, they did bash their head against yeah. the bars. Okay, so my first thought when he shot the um, the creature dead is like, 
doesn't that just start the problem all over again? Because the the creature came out of the hollow earth and right. got killed by arrows, and then well, they'll probably thousands well, yeah, of years later, bullets. They, thousands of years later, they uh, find a skeleton and his spirit starts wrecking havoc. Right and now, it'll and, be now it'll be like lasers next time. Yeah, it's just not like you know. I was like, up, ah, bam, bam. He's I like, guess shit. I gotta start again. Right. Well, uh, wouldn't they though? Now they know to actually do something right with Probably the body. Just, yeah. That's and what like, I was gonna say. Yeah, yeah, they can kind of dispose of it in a in a more uh, final manner. I guess that's a good point though. They, they, they that's a good point though because they should have mentioned like what they're gonna do now. Yeah. So that way it doesn't happen again. Right. I didn't think about that. That's really good, Aubrey. Probably burn it. I guess. So after all of this, Gray calls out to the captain, but the captain's been smashed on the head really good. Gilfred is trying to escape. He's made a run for it, and he's got the sword, too. And Gilfred hears a voice, and it tells him to beware. I will blast you with a word and send you to hell. The voice laughs and introduces himself, and it's Strobel. It's his old master. And he's got the ring of salamanders around him. really cute. He says he remains as Guilford's master even after death. And he says he was the one that worked the magic tonight. It was me. You are nothing, Martin. And he laughs at him. Guilford, I guess he passes out from this. And Edward just finds him lying on the ground with a sword. I like how um, like Strobel appears. He's like, hi. He's hi, Strobel. <laughs> and he's like, you remember my salamanders? They're, <laughs> They're precious. Yeah, but I like this at the end where he just kind of tells him that you're nothing. You know, I yeah. it, it was all me. Gray goes to pick up the sword and then he gets the... Uh, now here's the other guy again. Here's his, Liam Neeson and also the... little weenie... The mask, the, the, the yeah. mask, mask guy. Friend. Yeah. Yeah, and and I thought this was interesting. So the guy says, uh, that'll do, Mr. Brooks. So the mask guy is named Mr. Brooks. So why is he wearing a mask? Is, it, is he like disfigured under there? Because I thought the mask was like maybe... Because he didn't want people to know who he was, yeah. but he clearly addresses him by his name. Right. So I don't know. <laughs> you know what I mean? Very... Maybe he's just kind of a like a Victorian nerd. Right. He's all like, "Oh, cool guys! I'll so I'm gonna wear the mask." Uh, sure. Mister Brooks, really? No, no. Seriously, <laughs> Wait, no, it's fine. Do you like it? <laughs> Maybe it's the equivalent of the of the the V mask. I was gonna say, yeah, the Guy Fox sure. Guy yeah. Fox mask for anonymous. Anyway, oh, man. So it's these guys that wanted the bones. Liam Neeson guy, he says, Gray, you remember that I let you live. And he whacks Gray with the gun Very and knocks him out. So when Gray awakes, the men tell him that Guilford was recaptured, but the sword wasn't found. The captain took the bones of the creature. So Edward runs out to the captain to see, to get the bones, or I guess to follow up on all that. This guy is selling very dirty cookies. Oh, oh yeah he is they're they're only half price though oh man <laughs> <laughs> oh that's a good detail and you, you wonder if you ripped the half price off after you accidentally dropped his cart oh, of cookies. No. <laughs> fuck half off <laughs> <laughs> when edward approaches the building we see that the captain's building is collapsed and the captain has been shot Poor Mr. Bacon has had to cradle his brother and now his boss. So Mr. Bacon says that he was attending to some other business, and when he came back, the captain had been shot and the place had been set on fire. He didn't see who it was. What's that there in his hand, Gray says. He opens up his hand, and there's a small cow in there, and it says Lilyput. Hmm. Lilyput and 
Blefuscu were two fictional island nations that appear in the first part of the 1726 novel Gulliver's Travels by Jonathan Swift. I thought Lilliput sounded familiar, but I I wouldn't even know where that was from. Well, I, they, yeah. they mentioned Gulliver's Travels yeah, later and how it was really based on him. Yeah. So here we're getting a follow-up to you that. You hear little bits and pieces of little things that you've never yeah. read and you feel like you kind of know it even yeah. though you haven't read it. Yeah, anyway. He'd want you to have that, Mr. Bacon says. And there was something else, a paper on his desk, drawn in blood, even as he was dying. Does it mean something? And it's the Helioptic Brotherhood symbol. So those are the people that killed him. Gray goes over to Mary's, and we see that she is also dead. She's dead in her bed, and there's all these lilies falling around her, which I think is really beautiful. Yeah, makes it extra poignant. And Mr. Wolf, is he says that when he brought her back from the pub, she stayed praying. And then when he went out to get supper, he came back and she had hung herself. Mm, But I don't think Edward's buying that. How much did they pay you, he says. Don't you play with me, pulling his gun on Mr. Wolf. You were paid to do it or stand by and see it done. And by God, I'll hear you say it before. And Mary, her ghost kind of interrupts. She says, Edward, don't. What does it matter now? Leave him to the judgment of higher powers. Leave him be, Edward, for your own sake. You hound them over this, and it will be your own ruin. Please, Edward, leave London, she says. Go home, Edward, while you still can. And as we wrap up here, we learn that Edward Gray never returned home, and for the next ten years never left London except on official government business, even after quitting Her Majesty's service, over her decision to suppress the true identity of Jack the Ripper. He remained in London, establishing himself as a private occult detective operating out of an office in Whitechapel, not far from the former residence of Donner Blackwood. He never stopped investigating the increasingly bizarre activities of the Helioptic Brotherhood. Over the years, in fact, he became increasingly convinced that they posed a serious threat not only to the British Empire, but to the entire world. Following an attack by an angry mob in 1893, the London Universal Temple of the Helioptic Brotherhood of Ra closed. The Brotherhood continued as a secret society for some time after, and many believe this group responsible for both the 1906 San Francisco earthquake and the Tunguska Forest explosion in Siberia in 1908. The end. And so um, we talked about both of those events in Dr. Karp's experiment. Yeah. That they were responsible for that. And as we close, we see... That they have the bones of the vampire. Uh, So that's what ended up with it. And they're doing some sort of ceremony where they're all connecting to it. It kind of reminds me of we saw a bunch of dead guys around a thing like this at the end of Conqueror Worm. Where Hellboy says this is the worst place on earth. (laughs) There's these guys and they're all around a machine dead like this. And we kind of see also in their lair we see the Liam Neeson guy. He's there. And we see the sword. Yeah. Is there, so he took that as well. Yeah, so there's an afterword here from Mignola. Where did this thing come from? I said it a bunch of times, and it's really true. The novel Dracula, which I read at a tender age of 13, changed my life. I probably already knew I wanted to draw monsters. I don't remember a time when I didn't. But from then on, I knew I w- what I wanted to read. I wanted guys in Victorian outfits creeping around foggy <laughs> graveyards looking for monsters. Ask my therapist why. I don't know. I just know that from then on, I loved that world. I read the well-known and not-so-well-known Victoria's Ghost Story writers, M.R. James, J.S. Lefanu, E.F. Benson, Maupassant, Bangs Dickens, Beers, Riddell, 
Jacobs, Kipling, and somewhere in there, I discovered the occult detectives. Now, Van Helsing in Dracula was sort of an occult detective, but we only saw him solve that one case, and he took a long time to do it. <laughs> Algeron Blackwood wrote a whole series of stories about this guy, John Silence. So did William Hope Hodgson. And around that time, these stories were being written. There were real guys like Harry Price running around investigating Borley Rectory and Jeff the Talking Mongoose. Add to that all the crazy spiritualist stuff going on back then. Madame Blavatsky and the Theophysist. Hollow Earth theories. Yeah, that's my kind of stuff. And we talked about Blavatsky already. So when I started seriously thinking about creating my own comic, I knew I would do an occult detective. I was planning on making my detective a regular human being inspired by the guys real and fictional mentioned above, but set in the Victorian era. Back then, I had just finished the comic book adaptation of Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula film. We just talked about that. Yeah. yeah. It turned out okay, but it was a lot of work. I didn't even want to think about drawing another coach wheel for a long time. And I thought, if I was hoping this comic of mine would turn into a series, wouldn't it be smarter to set it in the modern world so I wouldn't constantly be searching for period reference? Lazy? Maybe. I prefer to think I was just being practical. Then, of course, there was the matter of the detective himself. By then, I'd been drawing comics for about 10 years, and I knew a few things about myself. And as sure as I knew, drawing horses and handsome cabs were going to drive me crazy. I knew I'd eventually get bored drawing a regular guy. Sorry, it's true. But I went with Hellboy instead, and he was supposed to be a regular guy, but turned into something else. Blah, blah, blah. I've written about that whole thing elsewhere. But everything that I like, I have to have my own version of it in the Hellboy world. So just like I created Lobster Johnson to stand in for all those great pulp characters of the 30s, I created Sir Edward Grey to represent the classic English occult detective. I first mentioned Edward Gray briefly in the second Hellboy miniseries, Wake the Devil. He appeared sort of in one panel. If you blink, you missed it. But little by little, his Victorian world wormed its way into Hellboy. I created the Helioptic Brotherhood of Ra, a stand-in for any number of Victorian secret societies for the Hellboy story, Dr. Carp's Experiment, and a short time later, Ape Sapien's Victorian roots started to show. Before you knew it, we had a Victorian submarine, you need one of those, <laughs> Victorian cyborgs, and a living mummy, unwrapped, of course, by Victorians. We were picking up steam now. One of our major villains in the BPRD books turned out to be a former creator of the British Historical Society who had done time in Victorian Bedlam. It seemed about time for Ed Gray to show up again. He appeared in the first ten pages of Ape Sapien the Drowning, which we haven't read yet, but we will, and after that he just didn't want to go away. I find that happens with these characters sometimes. It's hard to get them back to being supporting characters again. Okay, but where I was going to find an artist crazy enough to draw a whole series set in Victorian London. <laughs> Enter Ben Stenbeck, and I don't really know if he's crazy, though he is willing to work with me. But he is very, very good. Great with characters and mood and a nut for research. He really delivered the goods. Sometimes a character just needs to be patient and wait for the right artist to come along. On the following pages, you'll find the two short stories, and we talked about those, Murderous Intent and um, the teaser for the Ed Gray Witchfinder series. Henry Hood, coin-eyed, living corpse, first appeared in the Hellboy series Darkness Calls. Just as the Hellboy world needed a 30s pulp hero and a Victorian occult detective, I felt it needed its own relentless, corrupt, 17th century persecutor of witches. Hood is modeled after a real-life Witchfinder General, Matthew Hopkins. Long-suffering Hellboy editor Scott Alley and I teamed up with relative newcomer Patrick Reynolds on The Burial of Catherine Baker to show that at least sometimes poor old Hood, like Gray, was working in the service of angels. There you go, Mike Mignola. So yeah, that was really great. I loved reading this Ed Gray stuff. And to be honest, I've only... This is some of the stuff that I haven't read too much. Like, I think I've only read this once before I read this. And um, I really enjoyed it. Having Dave Stewart 
be the colorist on on oh, these yeah. stories as well as it really ties it in mood wise and just aesthetically to the rest of what we've been reading right, so it's yeah. not like it's that far removed no just because that really kind of ties it all in and gives it the same kind of i guess feel right to it. right so that's yeah it's definitely interesting to get like an like a um period perspective of the world sure to see kind of what he was thinking and it, it, it feels like maybe partly was kind of his original intent yeah right, yeah ab- absolutely like yeah. He, like we just read in that thing yeah but um it was a different take <laughs> it really was and like i found myself really having to keep track of the people sure. like i guess when you're dealing with these supernatural beings they, <laughs> they don't all kind of look the same it's, yeah and these all kind of look like a bunch of guys with well, mud chops that's and what mustaches. Mike Mignola, again <laughs> that's what he was saying in his thing he's like i was gonna get bored doing that so yeah I to yeah kind of... so yeah it was interesting but i but i really enjoyed it the second time around well i while i was reading it i was like okay where where's this going and then when i was done reading it i i felt much more satisfied with what I had just read as an overall, you know what I mean? So that's um, not to, I'm not trying to like diss it in any way. It's just the way that I was reading it and everyone's different and the way that they read stuff. But just once I was done, I kind of went back and looked through and like, Oh yeah, this really ties in well. And I was really much more satisfied with what I had just read. Once I had read the whole entire thing, it was very, um, cause at first I was like, well, what is this? Is it, yeah, you know, what is it supposed to be? And then into it, it's a little, but it really, um, it really was much more satisfying once I had finished all of the books and and I could kind of go back and reflect on its place in the BPRD and and Hellboy world the way that you know Mike Neal was explaining right. the way that it fit in. Yeah, that um, was uh, yeah. Yeah. So it was it was I I did enjoy reading it, but I I didn't really understand what I was supposed to be getting out of it until. I had read the whole thing yeah. and was able to kind of reflect on it sure. a little bit. So sure. it was a little bit more of an involved yeah. read. Yeah, it was. And like and like you said in that one part uh, where you're like, oh, now you started kind of. Yeah. I, I kind of felt like the same kind of thing. Sure. It's just like, you know, all of a sudden I'm like drawing. It's a slow build, but it's a good reveal. And then, yeah. And then like, and then, of course, going over it with you guys again, you know, right. it's just like, yeah, it's fun. It's like it makes me appreciate it. And yeah, and, well, and you, enjoy it a lot more. Yeah, yeah. and we, you guys point out a lot of uh, stuff for me that I was like, oh yeah, that ties in really nicely. So that's what the book club. That's, that's what, the, what book, the book club yeah. is. Hey, friends, friends, <laughs> reading. You read Hellboy comics with your friends. Good job. That was a great discussion. And now Aubrey's going to say all the things. So, share us your thoughts on Witchfinders and your feedback at hellboybookclub at gmail.com. You can also join us on Facebook at Hellboy Book Club Podcast and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Hellboy Book Club. And also, check out our friends at manolaverse.com. You can find the podcast on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. On our next episode, we'll be talking about the BPRD Killing Ground. So, you know what to do. Pull out your back issues, trades, and stuffs, and libraries, and join us along next week. Thanks a lot, everybody. I'm John Salinas. And I'm Danielle. And I'm Aubrey Loveless saying, I don't like that bastard. (laughs) 